0: Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, vedanta, tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yogawithnish. May these words serve you. And tonight, we're going to go a little deeper in our investigation of Christianity, of course, celebrating one of the greatest masters who ever lived and who ever walked the earth and honoring that living the life of the masters or rather watching closely how a master lives and moves about in the world can be for us a spiritual practice. Now, the best thing, of course, is to meet such a perfected being. You know, in some Catholic prayers, you pray for the communion of saints. And what do we mean by communion? Often we mean like hanging out with. When we commune with nature, often what we're saying is we're going into nature and feeling out the vibe of nature. We're not going there to kind of dissect or analyze nature. Not really. When we say commune with nature, there's a kind of mystic flavor there where what we do is we walk into a forest and we look up and we enjoy the way sunlight is mysteriously streaming in through the leaves like music. We listen to the rustling and crackling and yet the deep pervading hush of the forest and suddenly we're filled with like this mystic feeling now, Khalil Gibran who was a Christian in Lebanon um, sang so beautifully in one place the wind longs to play with your hair and the earth delights at the kiss of your feet now that's communion you know when you can walk barefoot on the soft earth and you're like ah when the wind plays you're like ah So you see, it's not like you're going to a flower and pulling out all the petals, coming home and looking under a laboratory microscope saying, I wonder what beauty is. You're not unweaving the rainbow and dissecting and analyzing each part to see what magic is constituted of. No, no, no. Communion is not something you can do with the mind. That's the first point we have to make here. You can't go to like the Grand Canyon and look at it and say, okay, yeah, I saw it. Cool. Selfie. Peace. No, it won't move you that way. You know, you have to look at it in a certain way with a certain kind of openness, you have to breathe with your whole being and imagine that you were looking with your heart, so to speak, and then something can really move you. No, it just so happens that there are certain things in the world, uh, primarily in nature, that can create that sort of reverence and mystic effect. You know, so the Christ very famously would point to a lavender and say, look, look ye, lavender, even King Solomon was not clad in raiment finer than this. He's kinda of dissing on his grandfather a little bit here. You know, that's a line of kings, King David, Solomon, all that. And he's saying, with all their finery, in the time of kings, in the time of the temple, in the time of the grandeur of Judea, none of that, none of that wealth could compare to that abundance that you're seeing here and now right in front of you in the form of this lavender. So the Christ above all was a lover of nature. And if anybody goes out into the forest and looks with their heart and not with their mind, um, immediately you will know what communion with nature means, how it feels. So in that same sense, we commune with saints, meaning we don't just look at them, we feel them. Uh, in today's modern California vernacular, you might say you uh, feel out the vibes, you do a vibe check. <laughs> you sense intuitively with your heart. You know, you reason with your heart, so to speak. And sometimes the heart's reason contradicts the mind, but not always. Usually the mind will assent and agree to what the heart comes up with. But the heart has a certain kind of authority. So when you look at a saint, um, you can feel that reverence. Why? Mostly because they are exemplifying the very highest ideals of life. They are actually walking the talk. And that's a powerful feeling. When you meet someone in your life um, who actually walks the talk of spirituality, um, it can move you because it can show you your own possibility. It can show you what you could also have in your life. Because a lot of those people are everyday people like you and me. Yes, they've been deified. They've quite literally been canonized. Um, but uh, the living saints of today... You know, you can still see them in little Mexican villages and all over the world, um, far away in some favela. There will be a medicine woman who can heal people, who channels the Christ. Therese Newman, who had the stigmata appear in a small town in Germany. You know, there are people all over the world who demonstrate tremendous um, experiences, tremendous openings into spirit, and from them pours, for, pours forth the ever-cleansing uh, waters of the Holy Ghost. And they heal everyone, and they heal people. But more than healing them, they heal their hearts, they inspire them, they uplift them, and they give them faith, a faith to pursue a spiritual life. So the communion of saints is like the communion of nature. You can't just look with your mind. You have to really like meet them where they are, at the heart space. So we've often joked, if you went into Whole Foods, And Jesus was standing outside, or John the Baptist for that matter, you know, saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He might smell a little bit of honey and he might have some locust crumbs in his beard. And you look at him and say, oh, crazy guy. I don't want to go near John. You just walk right past him and go into Whole Foods, you know. Or better yet, that's less likely to happen. More likely you go into Whole Foods and you meet someone while you're checking out, some health foods junkie, and they turn to you and say, you know, I heard about a rave. There's a rave going on, Flower Street. Downtown LA, a warehouse. Come. Uh, some of my friends are going, and there's a guy there. He's like a DJ. And, uh, for some reason, when we go and see him, profound things happen to us. We feel inspired. He's giving us something that we don't get from the Sadducees or the Par- Pharisees. We don't, we don't really get that juice in church. Um, so we're going to the, like, club. We're going downtown LA to go to this warehouse to see this guy. Um, and I think you should come. And, you know, you might kind of say, sounds kind of weird. I don't know about it. And eventually you decide to go. And the next thing you know, you find yourself in like a warehouse in downtown LA. And there's like a charismatic guy there dunking everyone in a sink, maybe, or playing some kind of music and bathing everyone in pure vibrational energy or something like that. And in a way you feel renewed. And he tells you, you are now born again. You have been cleansed of all previous sins. You have been made ready for the coming of greatness. You are free free to receive the teachings that will set you free. And that's profound. When someone feels that kind of renewal, they feel like they're a new person. It's a tremendous sense of lightness. And that must be what it felt like back then when someone whispered John the Baptist's name to you. But if you didn't know what you were looking for, if you just went there and your heart was closed, you'd probably just see some screaming, twigs in the hair, eccentric hippie dunking people into the water and you would miss the whole point of it. You'd be like, this is bizarre, thanks for inviting me, it was cool, you would go home unchanged. So, in Ram Das's book, which is very popular here in the West, and, um, it's nice to quote from it because there he talks a little bit about his teacher, Haridas Baba, you know Maharaja's disciple who instructed uh, Ram Das in India. And Haridas Baba wrote on a whiteboard, because he was practicing Mauni, silence, he wrote on a whiteboard, um, if a saint, uh, if a pickpocket sees a saint, he will see only his pockets. In other words, you only see what you are. So if you look at a saint without that communion, if you look at nature without that communion, it won't inspire you. It won't move you. And when you learn to look at the life of Jesus with your heart, being, of course, the highest ideal in spiritual life, that alone will move you. That alone will inspire you to do spirituality. Now, the reason a lot of us are kind of pushed away from religious life and spiritual life is in a large part hypocrisy. There are people who talk a big game about lustlessness and greedlessness, which today we will say are the two central tenets of Christianity. No one can be Christian who is lustful and who is greedy, who, who owns a super church and is trying to make money. You know, No one can be Christian who worships at the altar of Mammon, who uses the name of God to solidify and reify power in the world. Those people of the Christ very aptly called the brood of vipers that will say, Lord, Lord. Um, yet when they show up to the club and they tell the bouncer that they knew me, I'm going to say, I don't know them. He says that right there in Matthew. Be careful. Not everyone who claims to be speaking for me is. And a lot of these charlatans do. Uh, they speak on behalf of Jesus. But you're no fool. Quickly you see through that hypocrisy. You say, oh, this father, he's talking the words of the Christ. And yet, look at how he treats certain people in society. Look at the ideas he has about um, other political groups. Look at all the judgments. The Christ, who in his purity did not say she didn't commit adultery. You know, he completely accepted that she could have and probably did. No, instead he said in Matthew, who hasn't sinned? Which one amongst you is perfect? Who are you to be judging this woman? Don't you have to look at your own sins before you can call out other people's sins? You know, judge not lest ye be judged. And in fact, in another place, he would say, Thou hypocrite, how canst thou speak of the moat, the tiny moat, in thy neighbor's eye when thou canst not see the log in thine own? So before you stone the adulteress, pause and reflect on your own anger, your own savagery, your own desire to kill a helpless woman for the sake of law. The Christ came not to break the law. He came to uphold it. But he sure had a few revisions in mind, (laughs) which we'll talk about today. So here he is, totally overturning Leviticus, totally telling people not to carry out the law because they themselves were not fit to do it. God can judge. The Christ can judge. The Christ being perfect. God being perfect. And the Christ, even with that authority, did not judge. Isn't that interesting? At least that's what we get from the scripture. Of course, this story has changed a lot over the years. And my intention is in the next three or four lectures to kind of take each scripture one by one and really look at the story, um, reading it, using the the, the experience that we have now studying all the spiritual traditions around the world. So the main goal here in these, in these lectures, in this lecture series, you know, to commemorate Christmas. And the main goal is to look at Christ with your heart, to have communion with the master see the way he lived his life, and then um, embody those ideals in your own life. Know that those who have claimed to speak for Christ and yet have acted completely contrarily to what the Christ would have done, know them to be the brood of vipers and know them to be not part of the flock. So another part of why we're doing this is because we're trying to get to the heart of things trying to get to true Christianity as it's practiced in the first five centuries of the church. We're going to look today at Makarios of Egypt. We're going to look at Nikephoros. We're going to look at Gregory Palamas, and one of my personal favorites, because he's quite intellectual, Avagrios of Pontus. Uh, We're going to look at Theresa of Avia, like we did last week, Um, John of the Cross, and all these living mystics who are embodying those uh, ideals. And from them, We're going to derive some practices that all of us can start doing right now to start living those ideals. And maybe even before that, hopefully we can motivate why you would want to live those ideals. Why it would be good to walk like the Christ? Why would it be good to follow in His way? You know, what's the value in doing that? Is it some kind of moral good? You know, will someone pat you on the back for doing it and so you should do it for the approval of society and your congregation? No no no. The motivation behind why you should try to emulate the Christ in each and every encounter with life is because doing so will bring you the maximum amount of joy. And that's what this lecture and every lecture we do is about. Is about finding a way to live in this world that's truly dignified, meaningful, and joyful. So uh you I'm sure you've heard. I, I think it might have even been Theresa, but uh, Avia? But someone once said, uh, no, Therese Newman maybe, but someone once said, uh, a saint who is sad is a sad saint. Have you heard that? If you look at Francis's poems, there was such joy and childlike wonder in all of his poems, in all of his prayers. When you look at Therese of Avia, she's like a little schoolgirl, you know, writing letters to her beloved. Of course, it's the Christ. And she's signing all of her letters, Teresa of Jesus. Oh, such love there. When you look at the great spiritual masters like Nikephoros, they're so ecstatic. They're always like um, expressing on their face, you know, this kind of sweetness, this inward joy. It doesn't have to be dramatic. Some of them were quite dramatic. Like Nikephoros was like taken by light. And in one of the accounts, we hear that Nikephoros is having like um, quite the experience, and he's screaming in the cell of his cloister, and he's like, the Lord, the Lord, the way in the desert has been prepared, the Lord cometh, and he's having this experience. But most of the time, it's, it's inward, it's silent, but it's beautiful. And coming into contact with such people, you sense their joy, and that makes you want to do it too. So it's the joy of the church, that brings people to the church. It's the joy of spiritual uh, practice that gives you the reason to do it. The best kind of joy you can have in this life, the sweetest kind of joy, is the joy that comes about when one can truly embody the ideals of the Christ, when one can truly live lustlessly, greedlessly, and with a heart full of devotion for that which is most sacred to you. And that's what today's lecture is going to be about. I'll do three things, hopefully, God willing. Um, the first is to talk a little bit about morality. There are a few terms that we need to unpack going forward before we start look at, looking at the scriptures. They're actually kind of technical terms. You know, we're gonna look at the word apatheia, which is a very important word back in the foundational 500 years of the church, apatheia. I'll put that in the chat. Uh, it's a Greek word. Actually, a lot of these words are Greek because most of the you know, Old Testament is in Greek. i oh, sorry, New Testament translated to Greek. Um, And a lot of these authors were dealing with it in Greek. So apatheia, we're going to look at agape. We're going to look at this idea of good and morality. So the funny thing is, if you feel a Jesus allergy, it's probably because some viper among the brood of vipers that the Christ calls out in Matthew, some viper used the name of the Christ to make you feel guilty and morally bankrupt. Uh, Someone used the name to disempower you. You, a child of God. You know, as, as John, uh, Paul the Apostle says very clearly in one of his letters, ye sons of God, he says in Galatians. As the Christ very carefully says in John twelve fourteen, these and even greater works shall ye do. So the message of Christianity is always very empowering. You know, I have died for your sins. You're cleansed. John the Baptist has baptized you in water. I'm baptizing you in fire. You're chilling. You're you're fresh. You're new. There's in your heart now um, beauty and, and strength. And come my way. My way is a way of strength, upliftment, and positivity. You shouldn't be stoned for committing adultery. Um, I don't hate you. I hate the sin. Come, I'll teach you. You know, and then Mary, in some stories, you know, Mary, uh, especially in the Catholic Church, Mary is kind of portrayed as a disgraced woman. And here he is saying, no, don't think of yourself that way. You know, come, I will show you what you truly are beyond body, beyond mind, beyond all the condemnation of your community. I will lift you up and ennoble you with Christianity because we're all brothers and sisters here. You know, you're not inferior because you're a woman. He even says in the Gospel of St. Thomas, which is, of course, not canon. It's a Gnostic text. And for some, you know, rather orthodox, not orthodox. It's a very technical term. No, no. Uh, More conservative Christians, the word Gnostic kind of means like Satan. So don't worry. For those of you in the room, we won't go into Gnosticism too much. Though I think a lot of you will be like, damn, this guy's a Gnostic. However hard he tries not to be, you know. Um, So apologies in advance. You know, I'm going to recognize my Gnostic persuasions because of mystical experiences. And I'm just going to say, forgive me, Father. I know not what I do. Okay, so... uh, (laughs) In the Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of St. Thomas, it says very clearly, bring me, if someone says, Mary, she's a woman! Who are you? And Jesus says, bring her to me, I will make her a man. Which sounds kind of weird. You're like, what is this? It's, he's kind of a, I don't know, let's say, presupposing the gender revolution of our time, it started in the 60s. He's saying, bring her to me, I'll make her a man. Gender non but no, no, no. Something deeper going on there, he's saying, No! What's your problem? Mary is not different from any of you. She's joined the flock as you have. She's following the way and she is teaching. She's blessing. She's doing what you other apostles are doing. Come on, Peter. Cool it. You know It's not your place to call her a woman and tell her she can't be with you. No, I will make her a man and that I will make her your brother. And the Christ would say, Abby, welcome back. So nice to have you. And the Christ would say something like, no, she's your sister because the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. Sangha. spiritual fellowship. So the Christ would say things like, uh, he whosoever loves father and mother more than me is not fit to follow me, which is a line we explained last week, so we won't go into it. And he would say things like, blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. He's saying, if you are Christian, you should be seen as a brother, sister, as a sibling to every other Christian, not as an object of lust, not as someone who is worthy of condemnation, but someone who's part of your family. And that family is deeper because that is a love premised from soul to soul, not role to roll, you know. So the Christ is the kind of person who seemed to, at least in the scriptures, be very loving, be, be very kind, and not the kind of person who condemns people. So we're just going to say, morality becomes important in our conversations about Christianity. What's morally bad? Because that word morality, is so heavy. You know guilt and sin and shame and the idea that you're bad morally, as if there's such a thing as moral absolutism and some things are just absolutely bad. And in fact, I'm going to argue that yes, that is true, but not in the way we might um, have heard. We're going to ask today before we begin our. Li- I mean, we've been kind of 30 minutes in. I always, you know, say okay, we're going to do some preamble and then we're going to do the lecture. And then I find that at 8 o'clock, 8:10, eight, I'm like, all right, now we've got that out of the way. Let's do the lecture. Let's get to the first point. And then Fabricio says, by the time we get to 8.30, I'm like, okay. And then the Christ did this. There are four yogas that we see in the Christ. Thine eye, be single, thy whole body. That's, that's Raja yoga. And then, and then deny thyself. That's the, he who should ever lose his life. That's, that's Jnana yoga. You know, so I'm going to try not to do that today. Um, so let's go right into the first thing. And the first question we're going to ask is what is good? What is bad? The second question we're going to ask is what is a soul? you really need to kind of zero in on the term soul to understand some of the church fathers and mothers and some of the mystical writing that we get from Egypt um, in that hesychasm kind of period of Christianity. And that's a really cool word. If nothing else, we can take this word away today, hesychasm, which, you know, in my opinion, humbly, is the heart of Christianity, the very mystical traditions of Christianity. And remember last week, I'm assuming most of you were here last week, so I'm just going to leave a lot of things on set. But I will say this, last week, um, we talked a little bit about belief versus experience. So one thing is it's not just hypocrisy that turns you away from the church. It's not just that people don't walk the talk. It's also that all you are sold is belief and you are told that belief alone is enough to give you the joy, meaning, sweetness, and beauty that the saints have, that the Christ embodied, that is promised to you by the church. So a lot of the times, We believe that belief is sufficient for Visio Dei, which is another technical term that's worth looking at, Visio Dei, which means vision of God, and in some of the um, Latin texts like Aquinas, Aquinas, and Anselm, you might even hear it called Beatude. And by the way, there'll be a bonus lecture towards the end where we'll talk about Anselm and three dialogues. We ask the question, is it really Satan's fault? Did God make Satan to be the kind of person who would err? And... Why did Satan err? What did he want that caused him? It's a conversation about free will. And of course, if we talk about Christianity, we can't leave out free will. So that would be like a bonus lecture. Um, we'll talk about that later. But when we start studying that stuff, you'll see that these terms like beatitude, visio dei, uh become very important. Communion with the Holy Ghost becomes very important. And the way that term is used is in a sense of like to be inspired, to be filled with joy and inspiration, sometimes with such fervor and such force that you forget even how to speak English or Latin and you just start to like mumble words and your words for some reason have power. The people who hear it get moved by it. They also, um, the Holy Ghost enters into them, and they might start to contort or whatever. So this is another term that's very interesting. It's called glossolalia. Now the reason I'm putting all these terms here, no, no, no. glossolalia. The reason I'm putting all these terms here is because I'm trying to remember them so that I can address all of them. But I feel like what will happen is the chat will go, <laughs> which is perfectly fine. Um, and we'll lose it. So if I forget one of these, just uh, let me know. So apatheia, agape, visio de, beatude, um, hesychasm, um, glossolalia, because I want to compare it today, God willing, glossolalia with the tantric mantras, cream hreem, shreem and all of that. Um, so these are some terms that I'd like to look at, but we're going to start with the idea of good, um, bad, and the soul—kind of foundational terms. So my point in bringing up beatitude and visio Dei is that um, I want to I want to stress how how much emphasis is placed on experience, not belief. So the goal of any spiritual practice is direct personal experience, encountering the divine, and not only that—it's not just about like a mystical experience of lights. It's not just about being born again. If you see God and you go back to being the same asshole you were before you saw God, it's not really worth that much. And in fact, some people are so overwhelmed by the vision of God that sometimes they they become even worse than they were before. What happened there is they went through the eye of the needle, but there was still a little bit of hankering for money and power and, you know... (laughs) So they weren't fully cooked. The wheat wasn't fully threshed and they went in and now they're having psychosis. So it's not just about having a mystical experience. It's about integrating that experience such that you can manifest those values in each moment of your life. So you must have charity. If you don't have charity, then you're not a Christian. If you're not just giving everything away, if you're not like within reason, but maybe even not, you know, if you're not like giving away your jacket, (laughs) are you really even Christian? Um, Here, I'm going to read to you now very quickly from this place, on having a humble opinion of oneself. This is from Thomas R. Kempis' book, The Imitation of Christ, which we referenced uh, last week. All men naturally desire to know, but what does knowledge avail without the awe of God? Indeed, an humble husbandman that serves God is better than a proud philosopher, who neglecting himself considers the course of the heavens. He who knows himself well is mean in his own eyes and not delighted with being praised. If I should know all the things that are in the world and should not be in charity, and here he cites Romans thirteen eighteen and Corinthians 1, 13, 2, what would it avail me in the sight of God who will judge me by my deeds? Another word of saying this is God knows heart, you know. It's like, what's the point of being able to beat Thomas Aquinas himself in a debate in some Italian square if I don't have the values that I'm trying to achieve through all of this philosophy? The philosophy, which is quite sophisticated, you'll see when we study Aquinas and Anselm and Augustine, the philosophy is good, but it's a means to an end. The fruit is this uh, uh, goodness, that charity that should come in you, this awe, this divine love for one's neighbor and most of all for one's divinity. If you don't have that, then what are you doing? You know, so whether you have a mystic experience or not, simple belief alone usually doesn't give you that. That's the point we're kind of angling at now. So just believing that the Christ existed, just believing that you will be saved because you believe, you can do that and everyone is free to do that. Um, But hopefully those here have ears to hear this next statement because you've experienced it yourself. If you do that, um, you will be frustrated because when people challenge your beliefs, you will lose that charity, that love, that lack of judgment, and you will turn into quite the opposite of what the Christ was talking about. You'll become very angry and hateful. And if you're so hateful, so angry, so judgy, what's going on here? Something has gone wrong in your spiritual practice. Um, and not only that, the belief, that feeling of belief, that unfulfilled promise, the fragility of belief when it comes into contact with other belief systems creates in your heart a tremendous anxiety, which is the very opposite of, Of what you're supposed to achieve in spiritual life. So why isn't belief adequate? Why is experience necessary? What does experience give you that belief doesn't? Now, in the Greek versions of the New Testament, the word for belief in Bible, uh, sorry, the word for belief in the Bible and the word for faith are actually two different words. So faith, the word is pistis. As we mentioned last week, the disciples, are not being called out for their lack of belief. They're being called out for their lack of faith. It's not that the apostles don't believe in the Christ. They've seen him do miracles. They accept him as the son of God, God, but still Peter can't walk out into the ocean. And the Christ doesn't say, hey, you don't believe in me. You know, he says, ye of little faith. Oh, clearly Peter believes in the Christ. He's looking at him for crying out loud, but he doesn't have faith. Can you imagine that? The ability to believe, but not be faithful. You can believe, without being faithful and you can be faithful without believing which is kind of funny why because belief is in the mind and faith is in the heart to put it quite simply belief is a concept belief is a story you tell yourself my religion is right and other religions are wrong it's a story you tell yourself if I believe I'll go to heaven and as long as you are in the mind you will never look at the Grand Canyon for what it is you will never actually see a saint you will only see through the distorted filter the convoluted looking-glass of the mind it's a dark mirror, and you'll look darkly through that mirror, through the looking glass, as it were, at this world, and absolutely miss the point. You know, again, to bring back Ram das, uh, Hari Haridas Baba said to him, If you wear shoe leather, leather, then all the world will be covered in shoe leather. If you look at the world through the mind, you will only see it from that point of view, and you will miss what's there. So when you see it through the heart, that's faith, and that's what you need. Uh, to, to, to have um, the values become manifested in your life. So faith then is more experiential. Faith is a sweetness you can verify. Belief tends to be dry and arid and insipid. That's how you know the difference. Belief is noisy. Belief is judgmental. Belief builds walls. Whereas faith builds bridges. Faith is inclusive. Faith is quiet. Faith is private. So when you have a belief, you need to go all over the world and tell people that. Do you notice the people who have the least amount of money are most insecure about their wealth make the biggest deal of uh of of how rich they are often they really try to show off and be like i have so much money look at me but the fact that they're showing off shows you their poverty it's almost like they pull up in a fancy car you're like damn that person is so poor so poor because they have the need to flaunt their wealth as if they're so afraid that you won't you'll see what's actually there a poor person a really rich person a person who really has their money well, let's put the needle aside. <laughs> but a person who really has money often is very quiet about it, doesn't make a big deal of it. Confidence expresses itself in silence. Uh, insecurity expresses itself in noise. Yeah, I like that. Anima in Latin, psyche, pneuma, uh, soul, you know, what, what is the what is soul? We're going to talk about it from a Vedantic point of view in a little bit. Okay, so that's that's that. Experience will give you visio de, beatitude and all of that not just mere belief, it's faith. And we could say, belief is in the mind, whereas faith is the reasoning of the heart. Belief is not blind. And you know, today people just blindly believe stuff because they feel like belief is sufficient. But you know, back then, you didn't just believe in things, you believed of course in the Christ, but you didn't just accept things, you really philosophized. You look at Aquinas, Evagrius, they were kind of intellectually engaging with the, with the scripture and trying to understand it. There's a person named Blessed Theophylact, who writes four volumes? And this is in the Orthodox Church, and I, I recommend everybody pick up a coffee, a copy actually, a coffee, a copy, also a coffee. We're we're going in deep right now. Blessed Blessed Theophylact, and he wrote four, um, four editions: the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of uh, Mark, of Luke, of um, of John. And uh, in it, he opens with, "One must arm themselves with proper reasoning when approaching Scripture." You know, otherwise the contradictions will confuse you. So, real Christianity, Christianity as it appeared in the first 500 years of its inception, was not about blind belief. It was actually, it featured a lot of critical thinking and debate and argument. It was a very thriving intellectual culture, believe it or not. But today, that's not really the case, right? Now, they say, the moment you try to intellectualize something in the Bible, like the moment you try to understand something with your mind, the first thing someone will say to you is, the devil knows scripture too. <laughs> As if like thinking is a problem. And I just said that it was. So belief is a problem because it's thinking without thinking. It's a kind of superficial thinking. It's blind acceptance of statements, of creeds, of dogma without properly penetrating into what they mean. When you apply thinking correctly, you can move beyond belief into faith. The jnana yoga path, which we're doing together now. Okay, so let's get into it. What is good? What is bad? So in conventional morality, what we require to make the statement something is good is its opposite. You notice that there's no morality without some notion of evil or bad, because in some sense, it's the evil thing or the bad thing that defines the good thing. Or more optimistically, it's the good thing that defines the evil thing. Or more realistically, it's the fact that there are dualities that expresses the existence of morality. So to say something is good, you must say something is bad. To say something is pleasurable, you need to have pain. Uh, To be even more logically um, austere here, to say something is red, you must have the concept not red. You see, morality is kind of, um, it it, it kind of implies duality. So where do we get this duality? In the Catholic Church, for instance, and in the Orthodox Church, and in Christianity as a whole, where does its duality come from? Now we know there's this idea of the kingdom of heaven, and in some of the early church writers, also the kingdom of earth, and something other than that something that's not that so the kingdom of heaven is good and any act that brings you closer to the kingdom of heaven is good and any act that takes you away from the kingdom of heaven that occludes that kingdom is bad and that bad thing is given the phrase the world or babylon So you'll hear such phrases as, wisdom with God is foolishness with the world. And foolishness with the world is wisdom with God. He whosoever shall lose his life shall find it. And he whosoever shall find his life shall lose it. Isn't that interesting? All these kind of languaging that says, if you live for the world, if you live for Babylon, you're not living for the kingdom. And if you live for the kingdom, then you're not living for the world. You see, you're kind of presented with forks in the road. What will you do? Will you choose worldliness or will you choose God? Because they seem to be opposed to one another. And God is good and the world is bad. So that's kind of the basic idea of morality. But now we must ask, what makes it good? What makes it bad? What's the good in the kingdom of heaven? And what's the bad in the not kingdom of heaven? That's our first project today. So to do this project, we have to look at two other schools of philosophy that um, influence Christianity very heavily. So around the first century AD in Alexandria, we start to see the emergence of some really powerful Christian texts, which of course um, turn into third century AD Constantine's Rome and Byzantium, and all those texts from Augustine and Aquinas, those texts to a large extent depend on what was going on in Alexandria in the first century AD. So in a way you could say Christianity, and here I mean as a philosophical tradition, began in Alexandria in the first hundred years of its inception. So there was, in the Levant perhaps, a healer named the Christ. And remember, not everyone believes this. The Gnostics think the Christ is more real as a vision or as an apparition than as an actual fella you know some people they're called low christologists believe that the christ ascended into the role son of god after his crucifixion where some people called high christologists argue that the christ was always the son of god and that's why the three magi came to recognize him and of course the low christologists will say no 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 they came to recognize what he could be knowing that his you know so one thing to note here is that christianity is not homogenous It's not like this one thing. There are actually very many different ways to understand Christianity. So a low Christologist, and I'll put that here, Christology is kind of the study of like what makes Christ the son of God. It penetrates into that deep mystery of avatars. What is an avatar? We'll talk about Ramakrishna a little bit, Paramahansa in a little bit today. So Christology, there's low Christology and high Christology. And all sorts of writers who argue for one and the other. So remember, low Christology is when the Christ didn't come in the son of God. And you can kind of support this by some of his like struggles with it. I love the uh the movie The Last Temptation of Christ. Willem Defoe tries to humanize the Christ and how he struggles with his visions. He says, God comes to me like a like a fiery bird, with its claws sinking into my mind, and he shows the headaches that the Christ has, and some of the you know, the The difficulty of receiving visions. Uh, Teresa of Avia received visions and she was very disturbed by them, as we talked about last week. So in low Christology, the Christ is a man and that's what makes him special. He's not just like God right away. He's a man and he has to deal with like man stuff. He has to deal with lust. He has to deal with greed. He has to deal with anger, but he overcomes them. He turns his anger into divine righteousness. Um, he turns his ego into a servant's ego, humility. He alchemizes lust and he alchemizes greed. So that's what gives you the Christ as a powerful role model because he is the son of God, but he is the son of God made flesh. He's man first, and then he becomes the son of God after he demonstrates how to suffer. You know, one thing you'll notice is that all the avatars had to suffer. So Buddha is seen as an avatar in some traditions. Look how much the Buddha suffered. Six years he starved himself walking up and down India, practicing with the yogis, starving himself to the very brink of death. Now, even the Buddha, can you imagine the avatara that is the Buddha and all the suffering and austerity that he had to go through? In fact, he even ate poison food like Socrates at the very end. Think about all the suffering Socrates had to win, or had to go through, you know. Christ would say, even the foxes have their holes, but the son of God has nowhere to lay his head. Socrates was like that, he would sleep on the ground. And, you know, they say California is warm. And they say Greece is like California, but it gets pretty cold out here. Socrates is fine with it. He's got one blanket. He's sitting out there in the cold in Athens and he's chilling, literally, perhaps too literally. Uh, So Socrates had to go through a lot of austerity. He drank poison. The Buddha had to go through a lot of austerity. He too had to, you know, eat poison food in the end rather than offend a guest. Um, And look at Ramakrishna. Yeah, red is actually in Greece right now. and It's pretty cold. Imagine Socrates sleeping outside, like the Christ. Wherever I lay my head, that's my home. I and mean, I just gave my blanket away to someone who wanted my shirt. You know, so that's the kind of people these these figures are. So look at Ramakrishna, for instance. So Ramakrishna Paramahansa, he got throat cancer. He was an avatar, is an avatar of God, meaning a divine incarnation. So Hindus um, and even not Hindus, like in Bengal, see Ramakrishna as this universalist icon of. Um, divinity that's not exclusive to Hinduism because Ramakrishna in his own life practiced Christianity and practiced Islam and declared to everyone that every path, Sufism, Christian Christian mysticism, all the six paths of Hinduism, all work. They all give you the same realization in the end. So he's not just seen as a Hindu avatar, he's seen as avatars in other traditions too. But notice this, he had throat cancer towards the end of his life so painful. We read in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, Ramakrishna saying things like, Oh, Holy Mother, I can't eat. It's so painful. And then he has a vision of Kali. And Kali says, What are you complaining about? Are you not being fed enough through all of these other mouths? And then he has a non-dual realization. He starts to love his neighbor as himself. And he's like, Okay, you're right, you're right. I won't complain anymore. And once someone asked him, Ramakrishna, you can obviously, with your Shakti, with your divine power, heal yourself. Why don't you? And he says, Oh, You mean you're telling me I should bring my mind down, which I've consecrated to God, down to the level of this body to heal it? Ugh, blasphemy. He could have healed it, but he didn't. The Christ could have avoided crucifixion, but he didn't. Martyrs could have not been martyred, but they chose to be martyred. And we said a little bit about this last week, so not to belabor the point, but it's a good point to repeat. Avataras come not just to show us how to live, but predominantly they show us how to suffer. So we see in Ramakrishna, his selflessness. And you know, when he had his throat problem, like it's really bad, you know, like this kind of uh, throat cancer, couldn't talk. He still spent all day giving instruction. And the doctors would say, please Ramakrishna, rest, rest your throat. You're talking all day, you have throat cancer. He just couldn't help it. He gave so much of himself to the point of death, you know, Christ-like devotion. Can you imagine that kind of level of, of compassion? Whew. And the Christ willingly gave himself, and not that just the Christ, but all the saints, the ones that have been martyred, all the Christian Armenians that have been martyred, all the people in Rome that have been martyred. They had so many opportunities to renounce, to kind of walk away from it all. Socrates had an opportunity, as we learn in Apology, to leave the prison and go and start a school somewhere. But they knew, they knew that if they walked out on this, they would be de- depriving humanity of a true example of how to suffer. So the Christ knew how to suffer, but... That's only valuable if he was actually suffering. You see, if Ramakrishna wasn't like, ow, then we wouldn't relate. You know, he would just be like, yeah, it's nothing to me. And there are people who say that, you know, I've met a lot of uh, great masters, great swamis who are suffering horrible things and there's such joy in their eyes. And when you ask them about it, they'll say, it's nothing to me. Let this body live for a hundred years. Let it live for one day. It's nothing. And there was even a swami who had a surgery, something in his belly, I heard this from another Swami, and he was giving a talk, but he was wincing. He had just come home from the surgery, and he had to give a talk. He was talking. By the way, in India, and even here, apologies, uh, talks go on for a while. (laughs) They're like all through the night, drinking chai, talking. So he's talking. All night he's talking, and every few words he winces. He's in pain. He just had a surgery. And someone said, Maharaj, great king, please, please rest. We'll do this talk tomorrow. You're obviously in pain. He said, what? me, in pain. Upon this back is the birth and death of entire universes. Why should I bother about a little prick in the belly? It's not bravado, you know. They're truly walking their talk. Swami Turiananda, once in a camp on his way to uh, Benares or the Himalayas or some pilgrimage site, someone said to him, oh, oh, all this Vedanta sounds good. You're talking big game. But if I told you to put your hand in the fire now, could you? Ha ha ha. Your Vedanta is nothing. And something happened. It was really bizarre. Don't try this at home. But Turiananda's eyes like glowed. And he got up and he said, gladly. And with zeal and conviction, he walked to the fireplace and actually stuck his hand in. And of course, his disciples had to jump and grab him and pull him back. Everybody jumped on him. And he's laughing. That scene always moved me. He's laughing wildly. He's like, ha ha ha. It's nothing. It's not that he wasn't feeling the pain. It's that it was nothing to him. He demonstrated what a human being can do. In fact, Sturyananda, we talked about him some time ago. He once took a bath in the Ganga. He used to take a bath at like 3.40 in the morning. It's cold, you know, in the Ganga. He went and took a bath uh, before he began his day's meditation. And he had overcome sleep at a very young age. Gudakesha, you know, conqueror of sleep. So he just he spent all night meditating. and He would take this bath. And this was when he was quite young. So he had learned all this Vedanta, you know, Aham Brahmhasmi, Deho, Asadrupo, all that stuff. I'm not. I'm. I'm consciousness absolute. I'm not the body. All of that. When he went into the water, someone said, "Hari Maharaj, get out, get out, get out. There's a crocodile." And he quickly got out. But then he thought, "Wait, why am I afraid? Why am I acting for the body? Don't I know that I am not the body? Why should I fear the crocodile?" Again, don't try this at home. But he went inside, or maybe do, I don't know what your level of spirituality is. But then he went back into the water and he took his bath. He said, no, no, no. If I truly have internalized my philosophy, let's see what I've learned. I'm going to go back into the water and bathe. But then he noticed he was going quite quickly. He was still scared, you know, he was still kind of like bathing quickly. And then he went, what are you doing? No, no, no. If you truly were convinced you're not the body, you'll take your time with your bath. And of course, the Crocodile left him alone. So low Christology is beautiful because it shows us how men, women, people like you and me can ascend to such heights. And saints are like that. You know, they were regular people like us. That's important to remember. High Christology uh, gives us a kind of profound mystery. The idea that the Christ came in as the son of God, which is interesting too. Okay. And that's too mysterious to really go into, but maybe you prefer that and that's beautiful too. Okay, so we have two kinds of Christology and there are all these different ways to approach Christianity but what's good and bad? And here we can say these ways of approaching Christianity, they come from the developments from first century Alexandria. And in that place, you had the confluence of a few different schools. One was Neoplatonism. The other one was Platonism and the Zoroastrianism of the Persians. So Arman is here. I think there are some Persians in the room. But Zoroastrianism is a Persian movement kind of popped up around the 1400s BCE kind of ancient you know one of the most ancient traditions in the world now zoroaster was a prophet in persia um, who gave us this conception of the universe there are two forces there's ahura mazda i'll put that in the chat ahura mazda is the lord of light oh yeah beautiful that's beautiful bath. yeah let's do neshama ruach nefesh in a little bit too because we have talked about some of the kabbalist but to understand christianity you must understand judaism the christ was a rabbi first and foremost you have to go to the kabbalah uh, Merkaba mysticism. Anyway, um, uh, so here's, here's oh, his idea. that Zoroastrianism gave us two things. Ahura Mazda, which I put in the chat, is a lord of light or lord of wisdom. And his opposite is Ahriman, or sometimes called Aingra Mainyu, which means like bad spirit or noxious spirit. So what happened at the beginning of creation, there were these two opposites. Ahura Mazda, the lord of light, squares off with his opposite, Angra Manu. Now, notice, in this creation myth, Angra Manu extends a hand to reconcile. The f- oh, sorry, so, whoops, Ahura Mazda, Ahura Mazda does that. The first thing Ahura Mazda does is say, let's be friends. Let's not fight. And Angra Manu slaps the hand away. Do you see, goodness in the very beginning is non-dual. Goodness already tries to reconcile the two into one. whereas badness seems to reify twoness, separation.. Um, so Eins knocks away the hand. I don't want to be and he says, I am going to wage war against you because you are my opposite. There is no real explanation as to what they want. They just they're just opposites. They're like uh, cat dog or cat cat and mouse or something Tom and Jerry. Uh- <coughs> so they fight, but to fight, because they're, they're spirits, by the way. Even the name Ahingra Manu implies immateriality. Like a non-corporate... So how can a spirit fight a spirit? What? Will, how will you fight? Um, will you like try to shine light on the other person? Like shining your iPhone in someone's eye? No, you need some kind of place to fight. So they create the world as an arm wrestling table. Quite literally, the world is there as an arena between these two forces. So Ahura Mazda goes first. He's the white piece. He can go first. So he goes... And he creates like this beautiful world because what, what actually what they do is they fight Aingra Manu and his hordes. So it's not just Angra Manu, also has like these hordes of demons. And so Ahura Mazda and his hordes, not hordes, I don't think you would call Ahura Mazda's people hordes. Maybe the shining battle light or something. They all come down and cast out Angra Manu. This is from 1400 BCE. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Now, Aingra Manu is defeated by the Farvashis. Farvashis are like, Archangels. They're like these beings that support Ahura Mazda in the battle against Aingramanyu. So what happens? Aingramanyu is cast out and he's placed in the abyss. He's locked in some part of heaven. You know, for those of you interested in like uh, C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien, who are kind of the more modern Christian mystics in literature, you'll notice uh, the creation story you get in the Silmarillion. Silmarillion, I forget. I think it's Silmarillion, right? The creation myth you get there is this Zoroastrian creation myth. The idea that like the dark Melkor, the dark elf Melkor, I don't know, the dark Valar Melkor is put in the abyss. It's kind of solitary confinement. You go to the corner and think about what you've done. So this ushers in a time of peace and beauty, which is the Garden of Eden, of course. This is a time where, and, and the descriptions are beautiful, you know, the sky is like crystalline and it's always day. The sun it's like a beautiful diadem in the sky it's always shining the air is replete with the smell of flowers you can see abby's screen here it probably looks like that <laughs> that's what ahura Mas does world you know what happened ingram on that rascal that scoundrel got out i don't know how but somehow he escaped his prison i think he like he spoke he whispered to some people and they were kind of seduced by his words and they freed him. So he came out and now he has the upper hand. He fights everyone and knocks them out of the world. And to use the scripture here, not even the eye of the needle was spared from all the noxious things. Oh, I paraphrased. Not even an eye of a needle was spared the noxious things that Aingra Manu spread upon the earth. He's the defiler. So what happened was he beat back all the farvashis. They all left. Ahura Mazda left. But Aingra Manu wasn't done there. He had conquered the earth. He's now the lord of the earth. He's like what Gnostics would call the demiurge. He's the lord of the... Sorry, demi-ruga. Demi-urge. And um, he wasn't done with that. He wanted to go and fight in heaven too, where Ahura Mazda lives. So he went up, but he got stuck. The Farvashis had created a crystal grid and he couldn't go past the ninth sphere, the, the sphere of fixed stars, as Aristotle would later call it. He got stuck. And this drove him wild. And he said, fine, be that way. If I can't have the heaven, then I will have the earth. And I will make sure no one has the heaven either. You know, so he goes to beings and he tries to. So that's Zoroastrianism. What's good is Ahura Mazda. What's bad is Angra Banyu. And there's no explanation as to why one is good and why one is bad. So do you see how familiar this is? This obviously comes to have a huge impact on Christian theology with the idea of like God and Satan, the adversary, the opposite to God. But Christianity very quickly develops. Very quickly, you get such ideas as uh, God knows, uh, the Satan knows not for whom he works, you know. Satan is part of like a, a henchman for God too. And in Job, you'll see it. They're like friends. They like have tea together. The adversary is like, you know, I don't know about that guy. Are you sure he really, really believes in you? And God's like, it's not about belief, my friend. It's about faith. And he says, fine. Does he have faith, though? Let's, like, wreck his shit. Let's see what happens. Let's, like, make life really bad for him and just see if he really, like, has faith in you. And God's like, that's an excellent idea, my dude. Let's do it. Isn't that interesting? They're like friends. They, like, kind of collude and play these games. So they're not necessarily opposed to one another. But the opposition, the idea of one is bad and one is good and they should fight, comes from Zoroastrianism. But please note... What makes Ahura Mazda good is three things. One, by definition, his name is the Lord of Wisdom. And wisdom is by definition good. Sophia, light, it's good. So wisdom is good. The well, first thing is by definition, Ahura Mazda is good. And by definition, Angra is bad. Because he's literally called the bad spirit. So it leaves no room for interpretation there. <laughs> you know who the bad guys are. It's Darth Vader. Uh, but secondly, he's bad. Uh, uh, Ahura Mazda is good because he brings beauty joy, goodness, in the form of flourishing. So evolution, nature, its everything. so pretty in, in Ahura Mazda's world. Everything is so peaceful, like Abby's photo. But in Angra Manu's world, it's all noxious and polluted and dark. So in that sense, Angra Manu would turn the world into Mordor, whereas, you know, Ahura Mazda wants the Shire. So that's the second way in which Ahura Mazda is good. He brings joy. But, and this is more important, the third way in which Ahura Mazda is good is that he is not oppositional in his thinking. The first thing Ahura Mazda tried to do was reconcile with Ayn Gramanyu. He tried to forgive his enemies. He tried to make friends with his opposite. He tried to heal the sinner. You know, he didn't cast them out. So, when we study Matthew, you know, Matthew's Hebrew name is Levi, and as you know, Levi is a tax collector. And of course, Hebrew society was quite scandalized to see Jesus hanging out with taxmen. They were seen as kind of vile bribers or whatever. And Jesus said, as we said last week, why would I hang out with healthy people? <laughs> I hang out with sick people, because that's where a doctor goes. So you see, Jesus, he doesn't want to push people away. He wants to bring people in. But look at what the, the current church authorities are doing. They're pushing people away. They're saying, oh, you love people like this? You can't be part of the church or whatever. That's exactly what Ahura Mazda, sorry, Angra Gramani would do. You know, I call it the thinking other people have demons demon. Like I said to you last week, someone came at me with a knife and she was like, you have demons in you, I must exercise you. I was thinking, that seems like a pretty demonic thing to do, to kill people in the name of light, you know? You can't say, God is good, and then go and sack Byzantium. <laughs> you know, whose side are you on? At the point of which, you're dragging women in Constantine out into the streets, raping them, looting the city, burning libraries, all in the name of God. What God is that? It's a demiurge, no? That's the Ahura, it's not Ahura Mazda, it's Angra Manu. Yeah, it was in my old apartment. It was, actually, it was after Shivaratri. it was very funny. It was kind of sad, actually. I mean, somebody I know knew very well who her, herself was a yogi, you know, kind of like a practitioner. But something happened on Shivaratri. I don't know. It was just like, you know, we, 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 some of you were there for that. We were all together, not for the moment, but we were all together and we went all night. You know, we were chanting all night. We were singing holy songs and discussing um, God. There was so much holiness in the room. And then I had a class to teach at seven in the morning. We finished around 6, you know, we caught the sunrise. I was like, you know what I'll do? Catch a little nap before my first class. Just as I was walking in the room, I turn around, and this friend of mine is there holding a knife and expressing that, like, there are demons in you. And then later I was like, but I said, uh, I have a class to teach. Let me do that, and then we can do the stabbing later. I was trying to make light of it. But it was really kind of sad to see, like, a friend of mine going through something like that. We had a lot of compassion, of course. But um, what she was trying to do was exercise us, you know. But you'll see this. You'll see this with Jehovah's Witnesses. You'll see this all over Utah. People in the name of God will, like, rape young girls to exercise them. How can anything in the name of goodness come off as badness? You must judge the tree by its fruits. God would never have you kill your son, though he might bring you close to it. God will always be like, no, 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 watch Abraham. Stop, stop, stop. (sighs) Whoa, I was just testing you, man. Don't do that. I'm glad, I'm glad you have that level of faith, but I would never ask something like that of you. You know, that's the beautiful thing. Um, So anyway, it's the thinking other people have demons demon. You know, the ultimate kind of intolerance is being intolerant to the intolerant. Just love all, love all. Know that they are where they are in their journey. Today, you know, we uh, we were joking about the Nephilim and the <laughs> Baal and Moloch and kind of like conspiracy theories. A lot of people in our community are very like, oh, it's conspiracy or whatever. So we we're poking some fun, and I do apologize if anybody's offended. <laughs> Unfortunately, we will mercif- mercilessly make fun of all these conspiracy theories, but it's all in good sport. I you know it's all love here. Um, but notice, some people, when you believe their conspiracy, when you believe in conspiracy theories, they'll hate you, and if you don't believe in them, they'll hate you. If you don't think the royal family are lizards, oh, you're on the, the wrong side of history or something like that. That is ac- exactly what Aingra Manu would do. So to, to kind of point at a practical part of this lecture, notice if you are embodying in your life oppositional thinking, if you're pushing things away, casting people out, judging people, if you're doing that, then you're not taking the higher road of extending a hand and saying, let's learn together as the Christ did. So that's Ahura Mazda and Aingra Manu. Okay, the idea evolved once Zoroastrianism meets Platonism. So maybe not quite Plato, but those Platonic philosophers that were in Alexandria in the first century AD. So they certainly were encountering uh, Zoroastrians. And those people, when they came together, they created this new philosophy where there was a world of form. And remember this for our conversation in just a little bit. The world of form is a divine world, an archetypical, beautiful realm. It's the realm of Ahura Mazda. Whereas this world is a world of shadows. It's quite literally like a play of light and shadow on a cave wall. It's illusion, it's degenerate, and it's bad. It's the matrix, Neo. Wake up, right? So that's it. But you can't leave it. So notice in the matrix, Neo can wake up and he can go to the real world. Whereas in true hardcore Platonism, that can't happen, actually. And I'm talking about 1st century AD Platonism, not like Plato. Because Socrates, you know, it seems like Socrates' philosophy was all about actually going to the... The, the pneuma, beyond the phenomena. Numenon, sorry, not pneuma, Numenon. The one principle that is real, beyond all the changing principles known as phenomenon phenomena. yes So Socrates might have thought it. I mean, he even says, like, you can get up, turn around, and walk out, but you have to train your eyes to see the sunlight. So he seems to be implying what would later be called Neoplatonism, which is the idea that you can go from this degenerate realm to that realm, that they're somehow linked, but in the more extreme dualistic form of Platonism, they're not. They're not linked at all. They're like parallel. And if you're in this world, sorry, all you are going to experience of God will be indirect. You can never experience anything in that archetypical realm directly because you are not of that order of existence. You know, Tom and Jerry will never shake your hand, unfortunately, except if you go to like Universal Studios and you see the big, but not the ones in on the screen because they live in like a different order of reality than you. You can watch them. They can't really watch you. You can watch them, but they can't do anything to you. You know, I think video game is a better analogy. You play a video game, you can kind of like, kind of control your character. But they can't really do anything. They don't even really know that you're there. (laughs) That's what Socrates would say, right? I mean, they were all going to Eleusis. And in the Eleusinian mystery schools, they were like doing all sorts of mystical activities that transported them to those realms. But by the time you get to first century AD, there are people who have created a stark difference and it's irreconcilable. You can't go to one, you're stuck in the latter. Later, the church would be divided because of this. Um, And it's a dangerous philosophy because it says you can only be liberated after death. You know, and that people here aren't really alive. So you don't have to care for the body or people because they're just shadows anyway. Their soul is immortal, and that's up there. So kill them, who cares? In fact, if you kill them, you're helping them. Because the more you torture people, the more you kill them, the more they're likely to reject this world and go to the next one. You know, So that's why Christianity gets a kind of weird, kind of um, literally schizophrenic kind of orientation, when it sees these worlds as separate, dualistic, which is what Ayn would do, would split them up. Now, it does evolve though. And the evolution here is as follows. The world of archetypes is called the kingdom of God. It's seen as like up there and the world of form not, sorry, that's not a very good word to use in this conversation. The world of shadows is here in this Babylon or this world. Now, the reason the world of archetypes and forms is good is because that's where you'll get the most joy. Salvation, you'll be saved from this world of form. So I keep saying form because I have the South Asian philosophical framework, form and the formulas, but no, this world of like shadows. Um, why? let's look at this world. Is this world really a happy place? Isn't it a really unfortunate existence? So many things in this world will cause you to suffer. No matter how much vegan dieting you do, you will get sick at some point. Sickness is kind of a given in life, whether in your old age or in your young age. You see perfectly good people develop like cystic fibrosis, you know? You see innocent people get killed by war. I remember as a young debater when we had to like research for debate tournaments we would learn about the middle east and about south sudan and about all the places in the world like somaliland and you know the first realization is damn, the world is a pretty messed up place. Uh, At least according to what the news would say. And back then as a debater, you know, we look at all that. But that's what we see too. Whether you trust the news or not, like when you go out into the world, you feel like, so many bad things happen to me. And I can't stop old age. I can't stop sickness. I can't stop death. You are afraid of your senses coming into contact with that which is unpleasant. And you can't seem to avoid this. Sooner or later, the senses will come into contact with that which you're afraid of. And conversely, even when you come into contact with that which you like, it's very quickly taken away from you. Getting something creates anxiety for its maintenance. Once you have something, like a nice house or a nice car or like the spouse of your dreams, you're worried they will leave you. You're worried the government will repossess your house because it's eminent domain. You're worried, you know, all these worries come. And I I teach, unfortunately, unfortunately, I'm very happy. I teach in some uh, places where the, the families... They have everything, you know, here in LA, in Brentwood, I give private instruction to certain families in debate and stuff, and I, I go to their houses and some of them have so much and they're happy. I know some people here who, who have a lot of wealth and they're happy, but their happiness has nothing to do with their wealth. But then I also know a lot of people who have so much and seem to be more sad because of what they have. It seems like uh, they have more problems because of their wealth, you know, Just kind of funny. a sad, but ironic because they're every day trying to increase that wealth, which today is causing anxiety. But you see, this world is pretty messed up because even if you get good things, they will go away. The good never lasts, and the bad keeps returning over and over. It's like every good thing is bookended by a bad thing and another bad thing. So very quickly, you realize this world is bad because it's impermanent. It's the revelation of the Buddha. It's the revelation of the Upanishads. Things change, and what you suffer is change. That's the real suffering. You don't suffer um, events. You suffer the fact that it changes. Yes, exactly, it's not a property of the world. It's a feeling that the world should be something other than what it is. What we want is the changeless, but what we experience is phenomena, the changing. And you know, in the Vedas, or rather in Vedanta, the definition of truth is achala, that which doesn't move or change, that which is immutable. Let's say I said something to you today. I said, you know what? I am an Advaitin. Let's say I said that. And then tomorrow I say to you, hey friends, I'm actually an Advaita Shaiva. I'm a Kashmiri Shaivite now. I I believe the world is real. What is Maya? What are you all escapists? It's not Maya, it's God's play. And then yesterday I said, no, 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 all of this is Maya. Am I speaking the truth? Well, to be fair, I spoke only a relative truth that was relative to that time, but it's not a truth, you know, because it couldn't have been insofar as it changed. If I keep changing what I tell you, then what I'm telling you is not the truth. The truth is constant. It's unchanging. The truth is something that always is that way. And that's what makes it true. You know, so the good is the true and the good is the unchanging because the unchanging brings fulfillment and satisfaction. That's it. That's the justification for morality. Something is good because it makes you happy in a truly meaningful way. And something is bad if it gives you short-term satisfaction but takes you away from the truly lasting fulfillment that could have been yours. Do you see how uh, morality is not absolute? You can't be good and sad. (laughs) Though in the beginning, in the pursuit of the true, in the pursuit of the good, you'll have to come up against a lot of your tendencies and there will be a friction and a struggle in spiritual life. So yeah, you can for a time feel worse, only to feel better. But even then, that struggle will be quite ennobling and wonderful. It'll be like an adventure, a beautiful thing. Anyway, that's why the kingdom of heaven is good. And that's why the world is bad. Because the world of phenomena changes. And in that sense, it's not that real. Whereas the world of God, the kingdom of heaven, doesn't change. It's eternal. It's outside time and space and causality. And therefore, it should be your goal, your aspiration. If I give you a present and I said, tomorrow, I'll take it away present might not be worth very much to you but if I gave you a present I said it's yours to keep you'll smile and be happy you know now even if you keep it you'll get bored of it though no you'll say okay I don't want it though I want something new (laughs) but this is that joy that's ever new it's ever refreshing because it's not an experience as much as it is becoming bliss beauty kind of melding into God thou canst not look upon the face of God and live all of that and mystics testify to it now remember Ramakrishna he never healed people you know in fact, people would come to him and say, Guruji, Paramahansa, you're a great sage, we see your power, we feel your ecstasy, please cure me of this, this and that. And he would say, no, 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 I don't do that, I don't do anything everything that happens through me happens through Kalima, I don't do, I'm not that kind of guy. But people were still attracted to him, because of his joy. You know, he would go to like theatre, he would go and see Bengali theatre, theatre was kind of big at the time, still is. Um... And there was some like God plays, like Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and all that. And he would only go and see the God plays. He wasn't interested in anything that was not God. So go and see it. And he would be like a little child, you know. Someone would come out, Gauranga would be like having ecstasy. And he would grab his friend sitting next to him, his disciple, and say, Ah, ah, me, look, look at that, look. He'd be so happy like a child. And he would just sit there so sweetly eating. Something about him was so sweet, so good, so childlike, that immediately you felt that was a happy person. So you see, the good is the good because it's happy in the only way that matters. Unchanging, lasting, permanent fulfillment. In the Bhagavad Gita, it says, Nā dukēna gurupāni vichalyate. Not even the heaviest sorrows can shake that highest good. And that's what Arjuna wants in the Bhagavad Gita. Okay. So that's what makes something good. In fact, you get this from Aristotle himself, who's a student of Plato. Aristotle begins his book Ethics, Nicomachean Ethics, by defining the good for you. He calls it eudaimonia or something like that, eudaimon, which means to be uh, the happiest you could be. And ultimately, he says it's contemplation. Contemplation of what? Of course, contemplation on the divine, which is theorion. The, the other uh, church fathers kind of borrow that and give it a new Greek word to contemplate God. A contemplative life is the most meaningful life, which is lifted straight from Aristotle. And uh, so here you see. Ethics, what makes something good or bad, what makes something moral or immoral, always is founded upon um, personal ethics, meaning a personal sense of meaning, and that is always founded upon metaphysics. You can't know what makes you happy until you know what kind of thing you are. And what you are is a soul. You think you're a body, you think you're a mind, but actually you are a soul. That's why the things of the body don't satisfy you and the things of the mind don't satisfy you. That's a clue that there's probably some other dimension of your existence that is more authentically you than all your other experiences have been you. <laughs> there's a Christian rock band, which I think is it's funny, it's like an oxymoron. Uh, Christian rock band that my wife listens to. and I like it too. They'll put it, she'll put it on the car. And uh, there's this line like, I've not once in my life have I felt real, but I've never been so close before. And I'm like, oh, the band is called Flyleaf. I was was like, oh yeah, that's that's good. I've never felt real, but now something feels more authentic. Something feels more true. So when you experience spiritual joys, like the sweetness of sitting inside a church, the sweetness of being in nature, of. uh, reveling in Solomon's grandeur and the lavender, the sweetness of reading scripture and talking with holy company, with your sangha. Yes, Travis, uh, this boy is indeed. Um, And and you see, that joy, that joy, that sweetness of contemplation, of having these conversations, the sweetness of prayer, far supersedes the fleeting pleasures of the world. Once a great Vaishnava saint said, uh, Tulsidas, he said, even one tear cried in the pure longing for thee is sweeter than all the joys of the world combined. Or he said it something like, The pain of separation from thee is better than all the joys of the world combined. <laughs> the longing for God is more meaningful in your life. Um, I can hear, no, is more meaningful in your life than the other joys. So I want to point you now to the Taittiriya Upanishad, because a big part of this is comparative. We want to look at the Upanishads and show how the universal truths of the Vedas and the Upanishads exist in all faiths. And so all faiths are good and unique in their own way, uh, but founded upon the same truths. So in the Taitriya Upanishad, um, we get something called Ananda Mimamsa, which I love that word, you know, uh, Taitriya, Taitriya Upanishad. Ananda Mimamsa. Mimamsa means to like analyze or inquire. Ananda means joy or bliss. So, Ananda Mimamsa is therefore the analysis of joy. What makes a person happy? What a beautiful phrase, right? And you should look closely at what makes you happy. You will, all of us will find that the things that we do expecting fulfillment don't give us that fulfillment. And yet, we do the same thing over and over and over. Oh, we might have a certain substance that we use, we might have a certain pattern that we like to play out, a certain person that we can't get over, a certain mode of behavior. And every time we do it, every time we get off, there's that feeling of, is that it? Even after fulfilling all your pleasures, there will be some kind of disappointment, and soon it will become unbearable. You know? There's even a, a metric song called Gold Guns Girl. Girls, Gold Guns Girls. today we came back from the desert so we were on the road for some time so i had all this time to listen to all this music and each song that came on was like bumblebee from transformers like a scripture like teaching something and it was all like okay here's what you have to talk about tonight it was so great but in gold (coughs) girls this canadian band a cute canadian i think new york maybe, i don't know canadian band metric is saying um nothing could get you off you're still not satisfied this is what in the body? Yeah, is it ever going to be enough? You get that. I like combat baby too, because she's like, I need some struggle in my life. Nobody will fight me. And I love, help, I'm alive. <laughs> anyway, so uh you see, when you get to that point where you've really been seeking pleasure in the body, meaning the lust of the flesh, and pleasure in the mind, meaning the illusion of knowledge, power, wealth, then you will uh, feel what the Christ called the wailing and the gnashing of teeth. He says it all through the scripture. There will be much bitterness, the wailing and the gnashing of teeth. And if you study people, today, I went to get a COVID test. I came back from a retreat. It's nice to, you know, get chest. So I went inside and the only same day test I could find happened to be in Brentwood. So I was like, oh man. So like the, the kind of Beverly Hills fancy. And so I went, I went inside and the place was called Same Day Health. Okay, everyone there was lovely. They're all like Nordic goddesses, by the way. I walked in and the whole place was like white and like empty. I was like, hello sister. And they were so kind. All the ladies there were like big sisters. It was so sweet. Um, but it was so fancy with all the light. There was no furniture. There was just a few plants, a few wicker chairs and one big white stereo. And everyone there was nice and it was good, great service and all. But I saw a man in there, um, who was like your typical Brentwood guy. And by the way, I don't do so well in Brentwood, this boy, when he goes into a Whole Foods, everyone's like, When is he gonna steal? Yeah, <laughs> they're all so angry and they're kinda of be kinda of be quite bitter in Brentwood. So they're all so hurried, they're in a rush sometimes. Not all of them, but often. So this man, he came in. And uh, he's dressed in that kind of like I'm in a hedge fund kind of outfit. I'm totally judging, I know. But what was striking about the man is that he came in and he was like, I have an appointment for tomorrow. No, first he started hitting on the receptionist. Remember, they're all Nordic goddesses, like just really beautiful angels. And so the first thing he does, instead of praying to the Holy Mother that these people are appearing, instead of seeing them as sisters, the first thing he does is, how you doing? You know, like immediately there's this tone of like, I'm strong, man. And I'm much older than you, but I have money and power, and I'm gonna, just gonna be a little cheeky, you know? Cause that's just what I'm used to. So it's almost like, okay, this is all superimposition. Forgive me, father, I know not what I do. But there might be a teaching here, you know? And, and I, I was, that's what I was getting at least. And they say, you don't see anything in others that's not there in you. So obviously I'm talking about myself here. This is in me. But I'm noticing in him, like maybe a habit, habit of like a previous niche to say, when I relate to a beautiful woman, there must be, by habit, flirtation. I don't know. I'm a young, charming man. You're a young, charming woman. Um, Here we are in a cafe. Let me sketch you. I don't know. And then I'll draw a stick figure and I'll be like, aha! What a startling likeness. And then there's a giggle and like, all of that is habitual. Why? Because um, my training as a young man in this world upon leaving my grandfather's ashram and going into the world was to see everything as conquest. And to see all these people as like, oh, their bodies, you know, not spirits. Not Holy Mother, but bodies. This man, first he started like kind of And she was like uncomfortable, but she was very good at her job. She probably deals with that a lot and she was kind of okay. And then he was like, I have an appointment tomorrow, but I have to fly in the morning. So I realized I scheduled wrongly. Can I do it now? And they were like, I'm sorry, you can't. I mean, you scheduled it for tomorrow and we're kind of busy today and we have people that we have to see. And he just wouldn't have it. He kept pushing, you know, he was like, no, it's easy. Takes five seconds. You can just do it and put it. Can you just put it with the the tomorrow's list? Can you do it now? and And he got suddenly kind of agitated. One thing that was true the whole time was that there was a lot of movement, a lot of shifting from foot to foot. Uh, The eyes were kind of going all over the place. And it was going so quickly from like this kind of, hey, baby, how you doing? to You are my enemy because you're obstructing my will. I'm used to getting what I want, you know, gnashing of teeth, real restlessness. And you can see it's because of attraction and aversion. He felt in that moment incomplete in both ways, raga and dvesha. So then he stormed out, right? Um, and after the whole appointment, all the ladies seemed so relieved uh, like by our conversation. It almost felt like it was the first pleasant interaction they had. Twitching my own horn here, certainly. But I walked out of there thinking, like, man, they must have had a long day. Because you know, they were always surprised to be treated well. But it seemed like, oh, man, that gnashing of teeth comes about when you've built towers. When you feel yourself to be so powerful and, and rich, unless you're a King Solomon, that kind of height, you won't be able to digest that fame. Unless you're a Vivekananda, that kind of stuff will take you down. You have to be pretty up there. And Jesus, look, he was the King of the Jews, yet, son of David, wandering all, sleeping here, sleeping there on the floor, and oh, nothing but a few sand, one pair of sandals. So anyway, that's what's bad about the world. So that is what makes the world bad. What makes the world good, uh, the the kingdom of heaven good, is that it is permanent, lasting, and it brings a peace that negates lust and greed. That's the first thing. So the, the thing that the Christ speaks out against most all through the scriptures is lust and greed. Notice that he will flip tables if he sees people making money. um, And, and you know, I don't think he actually has a problem with people making money as much as he does with people profaning religion. You know, so he's upset that people are using his father's house and his father's name to make money. But you'll see lines as he who, money's not evil by the way, but he says, he who loves, love of money is evil. Not money, love of money is evil. Coveting, coveting your neighbor's possessions. He'll say, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, which is a beautiful phrase, than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. Why? It's not the money. Like, rich people can be still, you know, I know someone, actually, she's in our Sangha, and you know, she's a beautiful house, beautiful life of means, but she has a renunciant's heart. She's the kind of person who like in her forties, actually, I don't know how old she is because she's like my sister. We feel like the same age because she'll come to my house and just sit on the floor and be served my doll in this apartment, you know, like she's so comfortable with the way that I live. And it's different from like having like a house and like all that stuff. Um, But she's so comfortable because she has a renunciant's heart. It speaks to the grandeur of a character that wealth can't really touch her. But I also know some people who have nothing, who are so greedy. It's not the money, it's the attitude. Love, coveting money is the problem. That's called greed. So as long as you're greedy, you can't walk the way of the Christ. We spoke out against that. Why? Because to be greedy is to be worldly, to want things that are changing. That's the problem. And then lust. Now, even lust is putting too much emphasis on the flesh. You think the flesh will gratify you. But when has that happened? (laughs) <laughs> when have you once been truly satisfied by lust? Um, and that's what the Christ is saying. Lust is not bad because it's a moral evil. You're not going to hell because you masturbated to porn. No, no, no. You're just living in an unskilled way. You're just choosing things that are not going to satisfy you. There's nothing wrong with your sexuality. It's a beautiful, powerful thing. And the Christ doesn't mean to demean it moralistically. He's not saying you shouldn't have money. He's not saying you shouldn't have sex. In fact, he, in the, um, one sense, is a renunciant, but to the Gnostics, is a householder. Mary Magdalena is his wife. So in one sense, he's a householder, and he shows fidelity. Because notice, he's not saying, don't have sex. Sex is awful. He's saying, just get married. Have single-minded devotion for your wife and don't even think such thoughts about your sisters around you, you know? Be with your wife, like be with the person, husband, wife that you're with um, and be faithful. Let that eye be single. Don't have a roving eye like Samson. Look how much trouble that got him into. (laughs) But uh, you see, so the Christ He's saying, nothing wrong with sexuality, nothing wrong with money, insofar as there is faithfulness and a surrender of the heart to God. If you look for money and for um, sensual pleasures, what's bad in that is that we'll be gnashing and weeping, and it'll be kind of not a good ending for you. So you're all invited to try, of course. Everyone is welcome to try the world. And St. Augustine did. For many years, he tried the world, and finally he said, Oh, by your grace, my lord, I finally found love for your house meaning your church. I've finally found love for you. I've overcome name and fame. I'm closer to you now than ever before as a result of seeing one of your own uh, saint at the time. But then he goes, but I can't get over the women, my Lord. <laughs> you see, Augustine in his confessions will show you he's getting closer to God. He has a lot of deprogramming to do, of course. He lived a kind of hedonistic life, you know? And then later, in his like late 20s, then he became Christian, he was baptized. You know, back then that's how he was. You didn't get baptized right away. You weren't, like, born a Christian. You had to, like, kind of do a rumspringer. Do you know what a rumspringer? You know that thing? The Amish people, they have, like, one year where they leave an Amish community and just, like, go ham. They go to clubs and, like, party at strip clubs and all that stuff just to see the illusion of the world so they can come back to an Amish life. Isn't that beautiful that Amish people don't cloister? They give a person a foundation and then send them out into the world to test it for themselves. And when they realize, like, the worldly life is as they were trained to see it, they'll say, okay, well, I'll come back to them you know, community. So like that, back then, Christians used to live in the world first and then having become dissatisfied with the world, that's when they come to Christianity. You cannot make a monk off someone who still has samskaras to uh, live out. That's repression and it will turn into some kind of pedophilia or some kind of weird thing. Like, you, you know, if you need to go out there and like get money and get pleasure, do it for a while. And once you see that it's not really the thing, then you can start your spiritual life. You have to intuit it. You have to be convinced of it. But it's not like overnight, you know. Those patterns will still kind of come. So now we're going to turn to the practice of the soul, the the concept of a soul. What is it? So we talked about good and bad. The kingdom of heaven is good and the uh, world is bad. Not because it's moralistically bad, but moralistically in the sense that one will make you happy and the other won't. One will create in your life charity, uh, faithfulness, beauty, You know, can you see, do you notice how much pain there is in a a wife or husband or partner's heart when their partner is like um, unfaithful? Have you seen a household like that? It's so sad. The children suffer the most, you know. Unfaithfulness is such a horrible thing to do to someone. Um, They really feel it. And so how can you be Christian if you're causing such pain in other people's lives? To have ahimsa requires chastity, faithfulness, uh, charity. Okay. So now, what is a soul? The soul is what you really are. The soul is not what you have. The soul is a dimension of life beyond the body and mind in which you truly live. The soul is the life of the body. And when the soul goes away, the body is an inert thing. The problem is, we are living for dead things at the expense of the living thing. The soul, the living presence, which is not worldly. It's transcendental yet imminent. So even in the world, you can see the soul, but you have to kind of go beyond the body and mind. That's why someone very beautifully was asking in the chat today about conspiracy theories and all that. It was a great question because um, you see stories, okay, these people are doing this, or the world is like this, or I am like this. Even good stories, like only Brahman exists. All these are still stories. And and I think Fabrizio is very good at kind of showing us how all these words are just that, words. The concept of Brahman, the concept of God is different from God, different from Brahman. But we get tied to the concepts. Why? Because we don't, we don't feel our soul. And it's not our soul, but feel ourselves as what we truly are, as souls. So what is a soul? I'm just going to loosely translate it now as sakshi, as witness, as the pramata, the knower of Samkhya philosophy. So you know from coming here a lot, Uh, most of you know very well now Sankhya philosophy. You know all about how this world of Prakriti is an experience and you are not the experience. You are the one to whom the experience occurs. So that's why Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita says, uh, pain and pleasure come and go. Be unbothered. Endure it bravely, O Bharata. Get up and fight the bhagavad gita it's all about realizing that you existed before the body you will exist after the body he who thinks he is the slayer and he who thinks himself slain both are ignorant of the truth a pandit meaning panda means knowledge of self the panda the enlightened one pandu not pandu, pandit uh, the pandit or the wise person does not grieve for the living or the dead say so no no one is really dying because they know their souls they're they're immaterial and incorruptible so you all know you feel in your heart of hearts, you feel that you are an inviolable, incorruptible, pure dimension of light. How can you be called a sinner? Vivekananda would say, I, 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 you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he would say, How dare people call you sinners? It's better to call you children of immortal bliss. Because your very nature is stainless, spotless. What is the problem? You don't know that nature. You live for something you're not. So just one proof we're going to offer for today to make this point clear. And we'll move on. And the proof is not anekam ekam. You know, it's not drigdrishya viveka. It's not uh, Pancha Kosha viveka. It's not The you know, Senior viranthists in the room will know all these terms. Discrimination between seer and seen. Discrimination between dreaming, waking and deep sleep. Discernment between the, the unitary and the composite all of that, these are all powerful arguments so your mind can get on board with what the heart already knows. None of that today, uh, as per Fabricio's, uh, what do you call it, challenge, Venanta-free lecture. So none of that today. Instead, let's use a more Christian approach, which is, uh, I wouldn't even say a Christian approach, but a bhakti approach, which is the sense of joy, the feeling of what actually makes you happy. Notice, this is the proof. If you were a body, if you were truly a body, then every time you satisfied the body, you would actually be satisfied. So simple, right? So elegant. So if the body is hungry, the body has a desire. If you are the body, upon eating, you should be totally peaceful. But is that what happens? I'm going to assume that all of you have been fed today. We've all had dinner, hopefully, or lunch, or some of you are fasting or whatever, but um, notice, it's still not enough, huh? Like you eat, but even after eating, you can be depressed and upset and unfulfilled. And we still have moments in the day where we're sad, even though we're well-fed. If you were in the body, you shouldn't be sad after you're well-fed and after an orgasm. But you know, so many people like lie there looking at the ceiling like, what did I just do? I feel like a stranger next to you. I don't even know who you are. And, you know, some of my, my sisters have told me after uh, lovemaking, sometimes the guy, and this is like in college with the frat boys and all, they're like even weirder. They're like, yeah, good, good. I love that. The, the guys are like uh, kind of extra, what do you call it? Extra um, averse to them after the orgasm. It's something that was weird. But you see, when we relate to someone as bodies, there's a lack of fulfillment there. So if you love someone for lust, if you fulfill the desires of the body, whether it's hunger or lust or even greed, you're not fulfilled, which means you must be something other than the body. For to fill the body is not to fill you. That's it. That's the proof. Elegant, huh? I love it. Now we go deeper. What about the mind? I mean, we say, if you are relating to someone, you know, today when someone goes to the club and they say, hey baby, I love the kind of person you are. Most of the time they're saying, I love the way you look. I'm trying to trick you into believing that I care about what you have to say. (laughs) A lot of times people are like, you could be so annoying. We could disagree on everything, but I'm willing to endure all of that because, you know, you're pleasing to the eye so sometimes like people do that like they they'll disguise lust as love but not always some people really do relate to others on an emotional and intellectual level so as a culture we know that relating to others as bodies living out our lusts and making relationships based on lust is morally wrong not because some authority said so but because it doesn't make anybody happy it's an unskilled way of living life but our culture Values emotional and intellectual intimacy. So when there is both attraction on a physical level and attraction on an emotional level, that's the bootang, right? Before that, it's like a friend or a hookup. But when that magical kind of two things come together, intellectual and emotional intimacy plus physical attraction, then you've got something interesting, something new, which we might call relationship or romance. Does that satisfy us though? I mean, for a time. But most of us, even in the beginning of our relationship, having felt all that emotional and intellectual intimacy, later in life can sometimes feel estranged from the one that you've known for the last 30 years. Some of the more married people in the room might be able to verify this, you know. You've been married for 30 years, and in the beginning, for the first 10, hopefully, I hope that for you, always, there was such joie de vivre. But then, there came a time when that, even that wasn't enough, you see. No matter how many accolades people get, they're still kind of miserable sons of bitches at times. They're still like craving something. So you see, accolades are in the mind. Sense of identity and power is in the mind. Even intellectual intimacy doesn't create that closeness that we yearn for. Emotional intimacy doesn't do it either. But when you meet a sage, like Ananda Maima, like Ramakrishna Paramahansa, like Paramahansa Yogananda, like Jesus Christ, uh like... Um, Mary Magdalena, like Theresa of Avia, like Saint John of the Cross, like Teresa of Lisieux, when you meet someone like that, or just the fisherman in Mexico with his gap-toothed smile who has seen God, when you meet someone like that, the way they look at you conveys a love that is so intoxicating, so much deeper than anything you have felt before, that you are made a slave to your Guru, not by force, not by dogma, but by love. We are all slaves to God, because of love, because it's only that God love, that soul to soul love that is truly fulfilling because it truly addresses what we are actually. If I love you as a body, I don't love you. In fact, I'm ignoring you for what you're not. If I love you as a mind, again, I don't love you. So if I become interested in your personality, if I say, so what kind of person are you? What are your interests? What are your likes? You know, I've met some of you and we share tremendous intellectual uh, rapport you know, but that's not where the love is. The love can be there, but it's actually being reflected from a deeper love, which is the love of just a presence to a presence, a soul to a soul. So in Christianity, the reason I brought up Sankhya is because Sankhya gives us yoga, and in yoga philosophy, each witness, each pramata, each knower, each sakshi is its own individual soul. Advaita, of course, remember that lecture we did, Do Other People Exist? Advaita says, no, 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 no. Bodies are different, minds are different, but souls aren't different. If souls are outside time, space, and causality, with what will you use to divide them? How can you break up water with a stick? <laughs> you know. Um, so we're all one soul, but I think Christianity in its early years, like Sankhya, which is the world's oldest scriptural, philosophical tradition, and like yoga, can be very... Uh, sankhya less lesser than yoga, but yoga can be very... Qualified non duality, which is the idea that we're all souls and souls are the same, but they're different in that I am a soul, you are a soul, and the souls are connected to God. So thou canst not look upon the face of God and live. You have to enter through the eye of the needle. What can enter the eye of the needle, you tell me? Can a body go? No. Can a mind go? No. I promise you. In fact, if you take nothing else on faith, please don't. But this is the one thing that hopefully maybe I can convey on faith. I promise you. That all the conspiracy theories that you have will be left at the door of your mystic absorption. When you go into that deep state of meditation, all the thoughts and stories about yourself and the world, all of that will dissipate like fog in the first rays of sun because then, in deep meditation, you will glimpse what you truly are and all illusions are rendered unfulfilling. Now, of course, we're attached to our conspiracy theories. We're attached to the world. Some people say it's kind of mean to call them conspiracy theories. Let's not call them that. Everybody has a right to their story. And everyone's story is a conspiracy theory. Can I say that? Can I say that some are perhaps a little crazier to the cultural zeitgeist than others? But who's to define what's crazier, or what's not? You know, some people believe their mothers hate them and that their mothers are evil. When in fact, their mothers are just hurt. Is that really so different than buying into the conspiracy theory that the royal family are all lizards and that tonight Fabricio and I are going to sacrifice to Moloch and Baal? No, none of these stories are crazier than any others. They're all stories, and that's why the non-dualist says, I'm sorry, yeah, I know, Fabricio. Don't worry, I feel like the Rockefellers, what is it, the Rothschilds, they'll they'll protect us now. No, remember, they're all, Alexa is listening, guys, Alexa is listening. So they're hearing now, I'm on your side. (laughs) Soon I'm going to get a check. (laughs) no 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 not to make fun of anybody to make fun of all of us everybody make fun of me to make fun of you for anything that we believe what you think you know what the world is like just because you're seeing it from one point of view you think just because you read a few internet articles you know what things are and how people are you've been wrong before you know and you will always be wrong because nothing in the mind is truth. but only meditation will show you that unfortunately from the point of view of the mind it's all you have You might say to me, but this is my one sense of control in the world. You can't take away my mind. Please don't take away my story. I'm sorry. That's exactly what spiritual life will do to you. Don't come here if you want to stay alive, if you want to be the person that you think you are. You know, come here to die because God's love only kills the innocent. It's a Sufi proverb. Someone says, God kills the innocent and the Sufi says, God only kills the innocent. (laughs) Let's be with that for a while. Okay, so... um, The soul is what you are. And it's something like a witness, an immaterial spirit, a presence. Um, And when the soul is accessed, there is spirit. So like Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit is like the juice and creativity of life that comes about when someone has soul. And we use this in the R&B community a lot. And I think Westerfer knows exactly what we're talking about. Westerfer, you know, plays. Um, And when Westafor is blowing, the breath of God itself will come out. You know, because it's coming from the soul, you know, soulful musician, you know, comes, says I'm not for the body. You know, a really good musician forgets their body, forgets their stories. No one believes in the lizard people or the Nephilim in the middle of a solo, you know. <laughs> so that's my point here to simply say that when you go beyond the body and the mind, which you can do through meditation and prayer, which last week we said were the same thing, really. Uh, yes, innocent are those who have done um, nothing wrong. The soul is the one who has done nothing. Yes, it cannot do anything. It's not non-actor. In this sense, the Christ says the father and I are one. A soul is in some sense one with God, but also separate enough for God that you can contemplate God. Let's stop talking here because there's no point talking about the soul using the language of the mind. That's where we get into trouble. If I try to tell you what the soul is like, <laughs> what have I given but a story? Another conspiracy theory. And some people are willing to kill for that conspiracy theory. You know, is there a soul? Is there not a soul? People fight and die for that. So forget stories for now. Just make this one observation. This one observation is enough. Have you ever really been satisfied from satisfying your body? And if so far you haven't, why do you continue in this direction? Why do you think this time will be different? Yes, exactly, Travis. Words, words, words. But unfortunately, we can't do without them. We can. Some people can, but... (laughs) But not all of us. Some of us are a little lower on the spiritual path, so we need some words. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Referring to the soul as a referent. So here we can say, yes, no point talking about the soul, but just note that thus far you haven't been fulfilled by fulfilling your body, and thus far you haven't been fulfilled by aggrandizing the self with towers of intellect, wealth, and prestige. Given that, shouldn't you do the opposite? Shouldn't you deny thyself? Shouldn't you fast a little more? Actually, you know, the Vedanta temple, they don't fast that much. Sometimes you'll even see fish there. Because Vedantists, we're like a warrior people. And food is very important to us. So you'll see in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, "Okay, who needs sleep? Yogi doesn't need sleep. Yogi can be awake, but you better eat fatty, juicy, pleasing foods." I'm not kidding. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna actually says, "Good people." He tells us what good people like to eat, what passionate people like to eat, and what ignorant people like to eat—satva, you know, rajas, and tamas—and he says, "Eat, eat, eat!" Drinks. Uh, Christ says, "Eat and be merry. Eat, be strong. Don't be weak." This this is not a philosophy for like the pale, wan, weakling. <laughs> Once I was reading a Gnostic, uh, what is it, Elder Malachi, the Tao Malachi, and he was saying, if if he, probably talking about his own experience, if you see the Christ, you will see him as a very strong man, a strong rabbi, and you will see his wife, Mary Magdalena, as a very beautiful woman. So Mary represents beauty, and Christ represents strength. Logos is strength, Sophia is beauty. So strong, strong, be strong, don't fast yourself to death. That's part of the problem with the church. A lot of people in it are weaklings. If you can't arm wrestle, if you can't fight God in a tent, get out. This is not a place for wimps and weaklings. You no, know? go join a chess club. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm just joking. <laughs> no, go find dark somewhere else. This is a place for warriors, for warrior queens and warrior kings and warrior people. Strong. So eat well. Be strong. Um, exercise. Be strong. Do your asana. So in this sense, Christ is saying, don't be weak physically, but the true strength is denying thyself in the mind. So don't. Hanker after the things that you've been programmed to hanker. It will feel like a denial at first. It will feel kind of difficult to become unstuck. As Thomas R. Kempis and Theophan say beautifully, yeah, it's just you're going against tendencies. You're going against samskaras. It takes training. Now we're going to get to the beautiful part, the final part of the lecture, my favorite part. Not to say it's beautiful. I don't know what you'll think. But uh, this is my favorite part at least. How do we do it? So thus far, we know what a soul is. Soul is what you are. And we know that we should more and more try to be that. How does a soul act? Perfect poverty, perfect charity. Even when they have money, they're so poor. In other words, they're not attached to the money. They'll spend it quickly. Uh, Ramakrishna would say, Don't save. <laughs> no, please don't take that from me. I mean Ramakrishna is saying it in the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna. He's saying, Don't save any money, spend it. <laughs> and Maharaji would say, be like birds, they don't collect, which is something that Christ also said. They don't store their grain. You know? They they don't sow nor do they reap, and they certainly don't go to a bank. <laughs> But I don't know. I don't know what you will do with that. And remember, it's not really about doing things. It's not really about right now taking all your money out of the bank and putting it under a mattress. It's about doing that in your mind. You know. So the Christ says, deny thyself. But how do you do it? It's not so easy. You know, let's say today, you really like chocolate. You're obsessed with chocolate. And you're very worldly in that sense. Now, how do you overcome chocolate? The more you say, I can't eat chocolate, the more you'll eat chocolate. The more you push something away, the more of a forbidden fruit it becomes. How do you leave the West? You can only leave the West by moving East. In other words, you can only overcome worldliness, not by rejecting it, not by repressing it, because that's a kind of fixation too, but by cultivating a love for some other thing, something sweeter. Rumi says, I know a sweeter taste. Once you taste that beauty, that peace, you will see that you cannot have your cake and eat it too. You will see in your own life, you don't take anybody's word for it, you cannot serve two masters. You can't both take a stand in the formless eternity and hanker after the formal change. It can't happen. You can't go to a church tomorrow and really savor the sweetness with a hangover. (laughs) There's got to be a kind of quietness in the mind. And we'll go back to the opening theme in this lecture. The thing about the world is it makes you very mind-oriented. You can tell a worldly person by how obsessed they are with their stories, their mind. They really believe their thoughts are true. That's how you can tell a worldly person. They believe in their thoughts. Their mind has a lot of influence over them. Now, such a person is usually very restless and such a person can't sit still and be with themselves for a while. That person is unlikely to commune with nature or the saints. To do that, you need to have a very calm mind. So the things of the world will... Uh, make you restless it will distress you whereas the things of spirit will calm you how do you know something is of the spirit because it's calming there's a deep abiding peace. There's a sense of uncaused joy emanating from deep within the heart like we did in our opening meditation. How do you know something is worldly? If it distresses you and makes you restless. Please be careful. The spiritual, the so-called spiritual, can be even more worldly than the so-called worldly. Because if you're so spiritual that it's causing you so much tension and distress in the mind, how spiritual are you? Spirituality is about moving towards peace, quietude, silence. So really ask yourself, are you a lover of silence? Yes, there's a lot of noise now. But after the lecture, when you're with yourself, what do you do? Will you quickly go and do something? Will you quickly interrupt the silence with some song, or put some something on the radio, or put it on the TV? Does, does silence make you uncomfortable? Does being with yourself and sitting quietly for an hour make you uncomfortable? You see... What's beautiful about meditation is if you can actually sit with yourself and just be content to do that, if you can be absorbed in the inner sweetness of prayer and meditation, you'll be going towards spirit because it's peaceful. It's so sweet that you won't get up from your meditation. Now, why do you feel a pain in the knee when you're meditating? Why do you feel restless when you're meditating? Look closely at that. It's because you're desiring something other than the now. You're not content with silence. It's not enough to be with yourself. It's not enough to sit. It must be something in the mouth, something in the ears, something in the eyes. You can do this with lectures too. You know, like let's say, I, I used to have this thing where I would just go from lecture to lecture. One Swami would talk and the Swamis, they'll always say, okay, enough for today. And then we'll all sit and meditate. But I will know, okay, in the other room, another Swami is talking. I'll go sit there. <laughs> you know, I could not be in silence. I still many days can't. Sometimes after this lecture, I should just sit here. And often that's the most sweetest thing. I'll go do something else. Why? Because I still have desires. I still crave things in the world. My worldliness prevents me from enjoying my spirit, my soul, because I am a soul. But I forget, you know. So if you are the body, then you'll feel pain in the knee. How do you stop feeling pain in the knee? Through asana? Through a lot of physical posture? Yes, but even after doing a lot of posture, you'll... Sorry to say, probably still feel a pain in the butt when you meditate, pain in the knee, even after a lot of yoga, you know, a lot of yogasana. So what do you do? The way to overcome pain in the body is to be so absorbed in the spirit that you forget all about being a body. Musicians know this, painters know this, it's a state of flow where even if you're sick, you don't feel sick. You just feel like you're in the element, you know? Later you might crash, but while you're there, what sickness, you laugh at it. Because you're not the body, you're floating, you're free, it's beautiful. Yeah, Guillermo, exactly. Foot falls asleep, butt hurts. You know, it happens to us all. Even senior marriages. I've seen like senior monks, like 70-year-old monks, like shifting. (laughs) You know, I'm talking about people who have meditated for 70 years, four or six hours a day. And many of them, by the way, have done 16-hour sits in the Himalayas for 12 years. I kid you not, like at the Vedanta Ashram, you will meet such people that have meditated for 12 years in like a literal cave for 16 hours a day, doing nothing but meditating, who are still today shifting. <laughs> can you imagine even at that level? I mean, of course, when you get older, the knees are a little, you know. Um, so that too, of course, the body has its limitations. But even then, at that level, you can still see they're shifting because it's not so easy. But the way to do it is to become absorbed. Yeah, sorry, Brock. But it should it should relieve you. The the strategy of trying to get the pain to go away, you actually know how to do it, you know. You already do it. When you are sick, yeah, exactly. That's the thing, ants. Nothing can happen to you because what do you, what do you want to do to my body that can be done to me? I'll smile at it all. I mean, that's what the Christ would say. He would say, I'll giggle at your sickness. I'll smile at your death because you'll still be in a good mood, you know, even if the body is sick. Towards the end of his life, uh, one Swami said, he said, Oh, you must be suffering. And the Swami said, Yes, Acha, cha-cha. Body is uh, on fire. Body is very hot, but uh, I feel cool. I loved that. And he was suffering from asthma. And he said, The body is burning. And the, oh, no, he said, Body is burning. Chalo, chalo, body is burning. But I am cool inside. Another Swami who was at the verge of death, going through some kind of diabetic thing, very painful, he said, Someone asked, Are you in pain, Swami? He said, No. Last night, Shiva came and separated the two. That's all he said. What will you make of that? Oh, I've been thinking of that for years. So beautiful. Last night, Shiva came and separated the two. You know, I sit with that. And I think you had to have been there. You have to have like, like seen it because oh, I saw a dog die two days ago, a, a week ago, and I was sitting there with the dog, like my hand was on his neck, and the dog was like, he <laughs> was like dying, you know, he was breathing. But I looked into his eyes, <gasps> such clarity, such peace, such joy. Oh my God, you should have. Seen. And this Swami was like that. You won't believe me until you see such a person. You know, you can see them suffering on their level of the body, and you look at them and their eyes. Oh, the joy there. You can imagine, you know, standing and looking up at the Christ as he's crucified, and he looks at you. That's how I felt. He's looking at you. And then suddenly, it's like, oh, I complained? I complained in my life? You know, this man is literally like, the worst thing you can imagine happening to someone is happening to him? I have no right to complain. I am not the body, because I'm seeing it in front of my very eyes. You know, so he said uh, Shiva came and separated the two or that's how I'm inside cool outside the body is burning When you can speak like that you've done sankhya You've done uh, yoga Okay So how do you do it though? You've already done it when you're busy and even for worldly shit like, Let's say you wanted to make some money or something. You forgot all about your pain Remember when you wanted to pass a final It was really important because your parents would be really mad at you, but you were sick You still pulled that all nighter. No, you didn't even feel your sickness. You just did it Because you were absorbed so the practical thing you can take away from this lecture is don't repress the world yes you know now the world is bad not in a moralistic sense it's bad because it feeds the body and the mind but you are not a body and a mind you are a soul you're not a dog so stop eating the dog food no a soul now you know the soul is good not because someone said so but because you yourself feel the most joy when you are in that state when you are connected to that prayer is much sweeter So in the Taittiriya Upanishad, that Ananda Mimamsa we mentioned earlier, privileges Bhajan Ananda over Vishayananda. Vishayananda means sense pleasure, bodily and mental pleasure. And Bhajan Ananda means spiritual pleasure. It's far sweeter. And even higher than that is Brahmananda, which means total dissolution, total melding with God. That's the best. That's the mode. So you know that. You know that bhajan ananda is better than vishayananda. So what do you do? Do you just quit cold turkey now? Please don't do that. That will only make your vishayananda come back with a vengeance. If you think something you're doing is making you too worldly, don't try to just drop it. It won't work. Because it's the mental attitude that you need to drop. So the way you change your mind is becoming more and more absorbed by God. Cultivate love for God. And through that love, other things will burn away. You'll be purified. The wheat will be threshed. So really, what gives you budget Just try to do as much as you can. So when you feel like you want to go satisfy a worldly satisfaction, don't say no. Don't sit there and repress. And either don't go with it either. Don't go and just do it. You'll be trapped in patterns over and over and you won't respect yourself after a while. No, there must be some struggle in spiritual life. But here's how you do it. The next time you feel a lust or a greed, you notice yourself acting from worldliness, that moment you must stop everything you're doing and go and watch a lecture, go and read a book, Uh, sing uh, godly songs, pray, do a puja at your altar, go to a holy place like nature or church, you must remind yourself. Go and meet your friends who do this. Call someone in the sangha and talk about God. Avoid worldly company at all costs because they will bring that samskara out in you. Seek out holy company. Talk only about God. You'll see, by marinating your mind in the color white, the color red will fade away. But you cannot get rid of red if you don't go to white. So here, to go away from the world is not to reject it, is to be with God. And then you know what will happen? The higher state is called agape, where beyond the body and the mind, when you encounter the soul, suddenly you love others as soul to soul. There will be this unconditional love that will transform what previously looked like a corrupt, degenerate place of duality into an earthly heaven. This is what is spoken of in Revelation. This is the consummation of a religious life or spiritual life, to use that phrase. What is religion? Yoga. The word religere, like yoga, means to be united to or yoked to reality. So if you're truly united to reality, meaning the reality of your identity as a soul, when you look at this world, it will no longer be a world. It will be, as Ramakrishna Paramahansa says, a mansion of mirth. Mojarkuti. So how do you do it? Apateya gives you agape. Apateya, apathy, distaste for worldliness. No, actually, apathy is not like that. It's it's not a cold, numb state. It's like, I'm no longer impressed. Like, Nachiketa, the Katha Upanishad. Hey, Yama Raj, what you give me is good. Hey, good, good, good. I don't want it. I'm not into it. Because what you give me is good, but fleeting. I want the real thing, Brahmananda. You get that from the Katha Upanishad. So here, it's like that. Apateya is just your realization now that you know a sweeter taste. You wouldn't be here for two hours if you didn't. So let's live by that. Let's all of us together now look at each other and say, from now on, having recognized with all of my heart that I can live in a more dignified, meaningful, and beautiful way, I will from now on saturate my mind only in the thoughts of strength, purity, beauty. Not from a moralistic point of view. I will never now, from this point on, cultivate any shame or guilt narratives. I am a son of the divine. I am a daughter of the divine. Ye sons of God, Paul says. And given that, given that I am a soul and the soul is one with God, wherefore should I fear? I should not fear sickness. And nor should I be kicked this way and that by the senses. And how do we get that attitude? Just pray. Just uh, do your bhajanananda activities. And you all know what those are. Now, um, Saint Makarios, one of the most beautiful saints in the Orthodox Church, he kind of started it. He's known for a tradition called Hasikasm. Now, hesychasm is the belief that you can't progress in spirituality unless there is some struggle. Notice, it's when you're sick that you can see what you truly know. It's very easy to talk sankhya when there's no pain in the body. Next time you get sick though, you see. How much have you learned? You know, when you're sick, do you just forget about all of this? (laughs) You can only practice when you're sick. So a true spiritual person knows that sickness is inevitable, but welcomes it as an opportunity to test one's spiritual maturity. The Dalai Lama was asked about death. Some of you were asking, right? Uh, the Tibetan book of the living, living and dying. I think Fabrizio was having this conversation on the Buddha lecture, in May, back in May. Isn't it scary? Like once you hear about the bardo, you're like, damn, I got to know some spells. You know, the Egyptian book of living and dying. I better know how to like balance the heart with the feather. <laughs> I got seven souls to protect. I, be- I better know what to do with the, with this fierce form of the Buddha. It's stressful. So the Dalai Lama was asked, him of course being a Gelugpa school Buddhist who uses the Tibetan book of living and dying, asked him, aren't you anxious? Your book is so stressful. There's so much you need to do. And he said, I'm not anxious. I'm excited. I'm excited to put into practice what I've spent my whole life learning. In fact, my whole life was a preparation for the bardo. You know, when you, when you saw him, I saw him on YouTube say that. Um, he was so happy. He was smiling. He was like, he, you could see in his face, like he was actually excited for death. Because that's when a Buddhist or a Tibetan Buddhist thrives. You know. So the next time you're sick, can you say, ah, now is an opportunity for me to demonstrate my spirituality. Not just to me, but to others. I'll show others and myself that I can be strong without worrying or being kicked around by the body. You show others greedlessness and lustlessness. Live the life. And you do that by cultivating love. So St. Macarios and uh, the people that would come after him, they all went to the desert. And of course, St. Anthony started it. <laughs> so Anthony was like, the world keeps catching me in the city. Back then, by the way, you could get paid a lot of money for being an orator, a theologian, they called it. So if you were a little smart, and if you knew Latin, Oh, you're going to go high in in Roman society. So all these guys who were interested in like spirituality, they found that they were getting too worldly. So they all left, went to the desert and started small monastic communities to practice uh, spirituality. Now, part of this was for the struggle to see if they really learned they were not the body. So Avagrios of Pontus, he would sit in a a well and pray at 3 a.m. in a cold desert night. Seems kind of crazy, but these, these tapas, no? Tapasia, austerity. Yeah, Stoics, I think they get that also. Yeah, exactly. Very beautiful, man. They definitely get that from Stoicism too. Sextus Empiricus and Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and all that. Lucretius, all that. Okay, anyway. Now, don't need to go look for a well. (laughs) Life is hard enough for us. We'll get sick, inevitably. You know, we'll get sick. We'll be tired. We'll be sad. Loved ones will die. When those moments come, let that be your coronation let those moments be a uh, demonstration of what you've learned in your life so far. You are not the body, you are not the mind, and you really get that if you pray. So Makarios, he went to the desert, and he developed a technique where he unites the body with the breath with a prayer. And of course, there's a whole kind of history of the Jesus prayer in the Orthodox Church. It has many different forms throughout history, and it's only really finalized by Gregory Palamas, and I'll put that name in the chat, Gregory Palamas, is, is called the defender, St. Gregory. He is the defender of hesychasm, the defender of the orthodoxy. Because in his time, which is like 4th or 5th, I think, maybe even 6th century, 80, um, there was a guy named Balram, who was a bit of a trouble. I'm uh, not a troublemaker, but Balram said um, that God could never be experienced. And he called all the Egyptian masters, the ones who were in the desert actually practicing, he called them all like heretics, because what they were feeling was not God, it was the devil. From last week's lecture, you know that's exactly what they said to Teresa. Even though she felt the hand on her shoulder and that feeling of warmth, they said to her, no, no, it's the devil. You see, people who are too platonic, too dualistic, don't understand that you can experience God in the body. So Balram criticized the Orthodox Church, and many of them got declared heretics. Many of them, by the time you get to the fifth ecumenical council, all of them were decried for blasphemy, all kicked out of the church, excommunicated, thanks to Balram and his neoplatonism. i oh, sorry, his platonism. However, Makarios, Evagrius, especially St. Nikephorus, and then of course, St. Uh, Gregory Palamas, all of them saved the church by showing that God could and should be experienced through the body. And you know, when you read their writings, they'll show you how to sit, tuck your chin in, chest broad. They'll teach you asana. and Of course, that was a point of contention. They'll teach you how to breathe. Breathe softly like we did today in the opening meditation. And chant the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me. That's it. It can also be Jesus have mercy or Lord Jesus have mercy. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Many versions of this prayer, many variations, but it's a mantra. It's Japa meditation. They even had a Japa, you know, a little rope. It's called a prayer rope. So they would count, I showed you last week, they would count on the prayer rope and say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Now you look, if you see Nikephoros' instruction, he says, go down to the heart. Go down to the heart, visualize light there, visualize Jesus in the heart, and then from the heart you chant. Lord Jesus Christ, mercy on Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, You kind of do upamshu, which is whisper, until you start to hear it. And you must do this all day, unceasingly. You can't stop. Even when you're in the middle of day, the day, your duties, you must do it. Martin Luther of the Protestant movement said, Uh, Every day I pray for an hour, except on the days when I'm particularly busy. On those days, I pray for two. (laughs) I love that. So make sure you do it all day. All day you must be doing, Lord Jesus. And I really encourage everyone to read Way of a Pilgrim. Because you'll immediately see, oh, this is the story of my life. Like, this is how spiritual life is. Because in that book, in Way of a Pilgrim, which is a kind of like synthesis of the Philokalia from the Orthodox Church, Russian Orthodox, it says, After a few days, a current of joy emerged in my heart. And I felt peaceful. It was very beautiful. He experienced something. So what do you do? How do you practice Christianity? Well, first, you have to practice. You know, Returning to the central theme of this lecture and last week, belief alone won't do it for you. Intellectual arguments alone won't do it for you. We come here to align each other, to intellectually understand what we're doing, but we actually have to go and do it. I actually know a lot of people who have been coming and listening for years, and my heart breaks, and they're the same people that first met us. And I was, I was like, oh, I'm failing. I'm really, I am I'm so upset at myself. You know, I was like, what? And already I have this imposter syndrome. So I was like, what am I doing? These people, they come here and trust, and, and I'm, like, I'm not the doer. God alone is the doer. But why God? Why aren't you, you know... Why do they seem to be getting worse? Then very quickly I realized, you know why? Cause they don't practice. They just hear only. They just hear and talk. And after the lecture, they go and say this to their friends, but they don't act. They don't walk the talk. They don't practice. So until you're practicing every day, these will all be nice, but empty words. So the Christian tradition values a very intense sadhana. All day you must practice and you need a few things. Love for God, Love for thy neighbor and solitude. In Evagrius's Practicos, which is a text everyone should have who wants to practice this path, he says, uh, I'll put it in the chat, Practicos. Practicos by Avagrius of Pontus. So he says there, when you sit down to pray, you must cast out of your heart any grievances with your fellow brothers. Because otherwise you'll just sit there and be like fuming and seething. So again, you must take off your shoes. And he says that also. Vagrius says, you take off your shoes like Moses. Come to meditate. Leave behind all your roles. So when you meditate, the invitation is, can you meditate more? And, and Actually, not more, but quality. You don't have to do more. A monk once told me, um, go for quality. He says, hey, Nish, you meditate. How much you meditate? You know, you meditate your three hours, but your two or three hours. But don't increase it without making sure that you can meditate 15 minutes first. When you know that you can really meditate for those 15 minutes, then you go to 30. Then you go to 45. So then you're not actually just sitting there and daydreaming for an hour, which is what we mostly do. We clock out. We said I did my hour, but didn't we? We just sat there. And so someone who meditated five minutes, but really did it, is going much further into themselves than we who just, you know, right in the check-in, I meditated three hours. But notice, the reason we're going for quantity first is from a Christian point of view. The Christians say quantity will give you quality. So make sure you're doing it all day. You must really immerse your mind in it. Because if you don't, the devil will catch you. The idle mind will go back to the world. That's what your samskaras are already predetermined for. So don't let the mind be idle. Make sure you're always doing the Lord's Prayer. You're always remembering the Lord. Zeti will tell you about it later. It's called Zikr, the remembrance of the Lord. Ram Das, again, third time we're mentioning him today. He said, love, serve, remember. That's the name of his foundation. Love, serve, and remember. If you just love and you don't serve, you're not doing it, you must... If you just love and serve, you must also remember. Remember that you are serving God. Vivekananda said, service to the Jiva is service to Shiva. That's the motto of the Ramakrishna mission, actually. Okay, so what do you do now? Perhaps you get the manuals, like the chapters on prayer or practicos by Evagrius Pontus. And you know what you really want, actually, you also want this, the Ladder of Divine Ascent by John the Climactos, or Climacos. Klimakos. Climax means ladder in Greek. So John C. Fabricio, it's a, a gladiator name. John the Climacos is a person who wrote the ladder of divine ascent. And he shows you the 33 stages, 33 years of Jesus, 33 bones in your spine, the 33 stages of living like a Christian, going from like miserable, like absolutely worldly person to communing with God. So this ladder of divine ascent is good to have. So you would read the Practicos, chapters on prayer, Ladder of Divine Ascent, like you would read the Yoga Sutra. It's your kind of workbook, your manual. There are also modern ones, mind you, like the uh, A Course in Miracles. A Course in Miracles is a modern, you could say, Gnostic uh, kind of take on it. I love it. Um, my wife actually practices out of that exclusively, and it's powerful. You know, very powerful stuff. I haven't really done it. I haven't, but she does it every day, and she really goes very deep. And her techniques are so Gyan Yoga. She, my wife's always kind of like every time a thought appears, Hannah goes. Uh, this thought is unreal she can divest from thoughts very quickly very powerful so (laughs) a course in miracles is very good funnily enough speak of the devil (laughs) (laughs) well if you're a Gnostic the Christians will say that right speak of the devil talking about Hannah here she comes okay so um, the Gnostics will say okay there's another way kind of Gnana Yoga analysis way but you gotta do it every day moment by moment you gotta do it so yes get Evagrius get John the Climacos get the way of a pilgrim, um, learn how to do it. And then maybe you get the modern stuff like A Course in Miracles, and you really gotta do it though. You have to practice. And you know what, the best practice is just prayer. Go to the church often, every day, at least spend some time in the church sitting there gazing at the cross or whatever icon you like. Uh, Have in your house all the icons if you're from such a tradition, like a Catholic tradition or an Orthodox tradition, have the icons of your favorite saints. They're like your Ishta Devata for reasons that we explored at the beginning of the lecture. if you're not from a tradition that has or icons, then put the cross all over your house. And have one cross on every wall. Uh, make sure you're constantly seeing the cross, seeing the symbol of your faith. Because if your house is filled with divine things, the mind will naturally turn in that direction. So that's how you practice. Now, uh, practice every day. And don't forget to read Augustine. Read John of the cross. Read Teresa of Avia. Because what they did for us, you know, like Teresa in her book, The Interior Castle, or uh sorry interior castle not council and then also maybe you can read um uh oh dear i'm blanking on it john theresa a way of pilgrim to some extent but these are you know what they are is their accounts of people in the life so when you want to do something you should read biographies and autobiographies of people who do it because then you'll see you and augustine are not different now you might say, okay, the sage or the saints or someone else, but when you actually read the writings they left, you'll realize they struggle with the exact same things I'm struggling with. So if they can get to that level, why not me? So these are the two things that you read. You read the, the imitation of Christ. You read maybe uh, Climacos, then maybe modern stuff, of course, and miracles. Then you make your mind single pointed by having icons or whatever. And you read the autobiography or biographies of all these great saints so that you can uh make yeah i oh cloud of unknowing yes that's what i was gonna write cloud of unknowing that's a good one too this is a good christian literature um here Matt is saying the very this is the the very revelatory for me i can sit for an hour no problem but unless i'm feeling the joy of it or excited mm-hmm. about it i can't meditate for even a minute yeah exactly so maybe don't increase quality quantity increase quality but uh, sad to say it takes some quantity before you can get to quality so if you are doing it, just increase it in some way, you know, if not quality, then at least quantity. Just do something. Swami Brahmananda, we'll close with this. I always say, we'll close, we we'll close, never we'll close. Swami Brahmananda said, um, just do something. Just do it. Three or four years, really apply yourself. Now is the time. You're young. You're, you can put impressions. And by the way, 40 and 50 is young to these masters. <laughs> do it now while you're young. And then, um, in three or four years, if you haven't made progress, you can come back here and slap me. Swami Brahmananda, you said, do, you'll see when you practice, very quickly it'll come together. But don't be satisfied with the level that you're at. Do more. Quality or quantity. Okay, so that is the intensity of Christianity and how to practice it. Thus far, we've talked about apatheya. we've talked about agape. Uh, We've defined hesychasm, which is seeking out struggle, solitude, silence, renunciation. We talked about like the orthodox practices of the Jesus prayer, some of the books that you can read as manuals and inspiration. And we defined soul and hopefully did some deconstruction of conventional morality. That's all I really hope to convey today by God's grace. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. Let's close with a Shanti mantra. And uh, I feel like we're very lucky. We've got um, very powerful practitioners here. Angela is here, and also Mads is here. Mads can do several prayers in Latin. When Angela does the Hail Mary, when she says Mother of God, I, I had an experience when you were in my house. So I don't know, Angela, if you'd feel comfortable unmuting and leading us in a Hail Mary, and then Mads you come after. If you feel, would, would you like to do that? Thank you. Angela is the real deal. Okay, go. Okay. Yeah.
1: Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us now or at the hour of our death. Amen.
0: Thank you, sister. Thank you. Mads, if you don't mind.
1: Yes, Ave Maria, gratia plena, dominus tecum. Benedicta tu in mulieribus et benedictus fructus ventris tu iesus. Sancta Maria, mater dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus nunc et in hora mortis nostrae. Father Naster, quies Caelis, sanctificitur namen tuum et veniat regnum tuum, fiat voluntas tua, sicut Caelo et terra, nostrum quotidianem da nobis hodie, et dimite nobis debita nostra. Et nos et nostimitemus debitoribus nastris, et ne nos inducas intintationam, sed libera nos amalo. Salve Regina, Mater Misericordiae, vita lo Et spes nostra salve, ad te clamamus ex filigi evae, ad te suspiramus, gementes et fentes in hacla vale. Ia ergo, advocata nostra, Ilos tuos misericordes oculos adnos canuerte, et jesum benedictum fructum ventris tui, nobis post hoc exilium astende, o clemens opia, o dolcis virgo maria, ora pro nobis, sancta Dei ut dignifique amor promissionibus Christi. Amen.
0: Name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Shanti, shanti, shanti. Oh, peace, peace, peace. Thank you one and all, thank you.